0: Hello and welcome to Hell Is for Hyphenance for April 2019. I am writer hyphen, not the first time I've hidden a secret message in my intro, Lee Zachariah. And with me as always is...
1: Hello, I'm writer hyphen critic hyphen doesn't live here anymore, Rochelle Semenovich. <laughs> and with us we have a very special guest, don't we? We do, I don't know if he's even a guest, really. Well he
0: looks kind of familiar, but I can't place it. I can't place the (laughs) face. There's various definitions of the word special. (laughs) I I apply to at least one of them. Hi,
2: I am writer, hyphen director, hyphen radio critic, hyphen Bob Dylan getting together for one last jam with the band, Paul Anthony Nelson.
0: Welcome back. (laughs) Thank you. Nice to have you back after all this time. It
2: feels great to be back. It feels even better that it's one. (laughs) 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 But yeah, no, I am I am super. Jazz to be back and to talking to you fine folks and to be talking to Rochelle for the first time on the show. Well, no, not the first, but for a very long time. For a very, very long time. (laughs) Sophia Coppola.
0: Um, And also very excited to be uh, talking about our subject this week. But But yeah, there is a reason we have you back. There is. Uh, And uh, so there's a bit of news that Hyphenis is sort of coming to an end-ish. It's been nine years this is. We don't know if this is going to be the, like the last last episode, but it's serving the purpose of being the last episode. You just uh, wanted to trump Marvel, didn't you? You know, <laughs> yeah. I was five minutes anyway. Any yeah. <laughs> Um, no post-credit sequence for me. Uh, no, there's, uh, yeah. So it, it was, we've been doing this for nine years with you guys. Uh, I feel
1: like it's been nine years for me, but it it, doesn't? it's yeah. been okay. about two and a
0: half. Maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and um, our absent friends, so may So of yeah. And it's, yeah, it was just, it, it was one of those things where it was, it was an open ended podcast where it could go on forever and, after a while, it was like, "Well, is this going to go on forever, or, or how do we end such a thing?" And nine years felt like the right time to go out. Um, I just,
2: I, I just, uh, every once in a while, Lee, I go to a small cafe in Paris, and I look over, and I hope one day, Master Lee, that you'll be sitting there and you'll be happy. At what point do you throw the keys to Joseph Gordon-Levitt to take over the place?
0: <laughs> well, funny you should say that because here he is. Um, yeah. The hyphenate rises. <laughs> Uh, yeah I mean it's been as you guys know it's an incredibly labour intensive show to put together mm-hmm. uh, and over the years I kept making it harder I added <laughs> cheat sheets and announcement blogs and the show notes and and, and
2: watching w- every single little thing outside of features even television movies and yeah. TV episodes and, yeah. and tracking
0: down every little thing and even fa- sourcing the guests and trying to convince mm. and, and you know we got some really big name. you know there was a year where we had um, you know Edgar Wright and Luca Guadagnino and other people on it, and then it was like well we have to top that and, you know constantly trying to get you know, really big-name guests who are probably sick of being asked to being on podcasts, <laughs> let's be frank. So... Because yeah.
2: it's really changed, hasn't it? The time since we started this podcast to now, like yeah. being asked to do a podcast was such a bizarre new thing. People would often go, "Oh, I've never done a podcast before. That could be great. What is this exactly? How do we do it?" Yeah, yeah. To now, oh please, God, stop asking me to be on podcasts. Like, that's
0: and, and I, I said something similar with the hundredth show, where I actually now feel embarrassed to ask people or to tell people I have a podcast because <laughs> so. And that's actually part of it is that there are so many out there, and everyone's got a podcast that I actually feel. An obligation to reduce the number of podcasts in society by one. Um, it kind of feels like I'm doing a public service now by making sure there are fewer podcasts in the world. Um, Nobody give you an infinity glove. Let's just say that. On, but now. also, like, just you know, it really has sort of taken over in a way that was fun for a long time. And really provided, you know, it was fun to talk about films. It was fun to talk to, you know, see filmmakers through the eyes of the person who loved them the most. Um, but after a while, it was just, you know, my viewing schedule basically for nine years has been dictated by this show. I don't really get to watch things for fun. I don't get to throw in a movie because there's always like, oh, I've got to watch this before we record.
1: So we should also add that Lee has a full time job. Yes. Um, that he manages to do around this show. And I mean, your perfectionism and your completism. Um, just drive this show and it's an amazing achievement, Lee. I've got to say, you do most of the work and it's it's just been... An inspiration to watch you, but also kind of painful because it's a little <laughs> bit masochistic, I've got to say.
3: Yep,
4: here, here,
1: completely
5: <laughs> <entirely> <laughs> with
4: <laughs> all of that. And this,
1: I think, by calling it a day at nine years is choosing life yeah. over movies. <laughs> 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 Definitely.
0: And look, like <laughs> Don't choose life. <late. laughs> don't choose 40 fucking movies and a month. <laughs> and i got to say, every film you've mentioned has is the work of a filmmaker we have covered on the show because we've covered a lot of filmmakers, <laughs> well over 100. That's true. Yeah, and that's actually the thing was I want my, in the back of my head I wanted to keep going because I really wanted to explore the films of you know all the Italian neorealists all the French New Wave you know Japanese filmmakers like Ozu and Mizuguchi mm. and like Chaplin and Keaton and Orson Welles there's so Berman. many Bergman we never did um, Herzog we never did you know there's so many mm. and but that's the thing is we've been going for nine years and there are so many names where people still say oh my god you haven't covered that person it's like yeah there are a lot of filmmakers and I kind of realised that if I stopped once I'd covered all the ones I wanted to it would never stop Mm. like it would honestly be maybe 70 years from now and yeah we're starting to have covered them all we've nearly nearly knocked them all off the list and it was actually yeah it was a few months ago where we were gonna we were talking about ending it and it was in the middle of recording I actually I remember the moment where we were recording with Scott Derrickson. He was talking about Vim Vendors. And it was one of those episodes where it was like Scott was a fan, then a friend, then a collaborator. And so I knew him inside out, knew him from every possible angle. And I was like, how can I end this? This is amazing, but I mm. obviously can't keep it going. So we made the decision that the monthly show is ending as of now. This is the last monthly show. It may appear in the future. I want to leave the door open. If I run into random example off the top of my head... If I run into Steven Soderbergh at a party and he wants to talk to me about Richard Lester for an hour, I'm recording that. It's it's going to be in the feed. <laughs> but for all intents and purposes, this is Surfing, as the last episode. So yeah, thank you, you to you guys and to So for yeah coming on this insane journey. It's been fun.
2: Well, thank you for starting it with me as well, you know, mm-hmm. our conversation, because this just came out of our conversations being, you know, director obsessed and yeah. having these conversations about careers and thought... It's that, you know, Seinfeld
0: thing. It's like, this should be a show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, the, the never not annoying thing of people saying, We're so interesting, everyone deserves to hear yeah. us. But that was the thing. We got around that
2: by going, We'll invite someone more interesting every day. Exactly. And they can drive the conversation and we'll just crack wires around them. Which which I think, you know, is my my perfect habitat.
0: Exactly. So yeah, thank you for, for doing this. Thank you to everyone who's been listening. Uh it's been fun. We're not quite done yet. There's there's a lot more show to go, as you've probably noticed if you've looked at the running time on this episode.
2: <laughs> um, I, I just want to thank Rochelle, too, for stepping up and being an oh, awesome been co-host such... and carrying the torch and to So Mayor as well yes, for yes, both being so wonderful. Yes, wish you
1: were here with us co-host. eating pastries um, and I, reminiscing. I, I, I did look at
0: uh, <laughs> uh, air flights from, from London, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I, I priced them. Um, Thanks uh, for
1: having me, guys. It's been such a privilege, such an honour to be asked. A little bit intimidating, but... Um, yeah, I've I've really enjoyed my time doing this and um, yeah, I'm I'm just so pleased and happy. Thank you. Yeah,
0: my pleasure. And
2: I'm happy to now that Lee can reclaim his life and watch what he likes.
0: Reclaim more. <laughs> I, I don't know what it was before this. It's been I've been doing this for so long.
1: So Lee, yes. who have you chosen for your <clears throat>
2: Hell is for Hyphen, it's Filmmaker of the Month.
0: Have you been practicing that in the intervening years? That sounds so, so fresh, like you've kept... It. Um, <laughs> Feels good. <laughs> I really want to say I've been waiting nine years for someone to ask me that, but the truth is, I get asked that all the time. Like, all the time. Who would you pick if you were a guest? And I think people are a little bored by my answer, because it's always my two choices we've covered on the show. It's Steven Soderbergh or Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, if I was to go really left field and slightly trolley, uh, Phil Alden-Robinson and Alexander Sokharov. But <laughs> <laughs> that's if I wanted to be a dick about it. Um, <laughs> or if everyone else was taken. Exactly, yeah. So the thing I've loved about this show is that we don't always pick the big names of cinema. There are a lot of left field choices we've had on the show. It makes the canon, defining the canon, so much more interesting. Rochelle, in year one, you picked Sofia Coppola. Nine years on, nobody's picked her dad. And I find wow. that frustrating, but I also kind of love it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No Francis Ford. <laughs> uh, and so Francis... No, we're not talking Francis Ford. Um, and, but there was one name in particular that has sort of been itching at the back of my head this whole time. And it, it's a name that's so obvious that in our November show, Rochelle, you mentioned him as the type of filmmaker people talk about on these shows. And yet we hadn't. Mm. And so I had to go with someone you even thought I
2: would pick. On my finale. That's
0: right. I thought you... Yeah, I did think you were going you to You were go like,
2: lay down, this is who Paul is picking. Yeah. And then I came out and picked George Romero.
0: That's right, yeah. And I had to go, yeah, with the great Martin Scorsese. <gasps> and... <sighs>
6: <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you for imitating the insincere shock that I display every time a guest says that, as if I haven't spent the last two months <laughs> <laughs> researching. Um, yeah, so the reason for that is that, yes, he's a favourite, and yes... You know, all art is subjective, but I think there is an argument for him being, objectively, the best of all time. I actually think there is an argument there. And part of that is that as a filmmaker and a film fan and an educator, he's maybe the greatest advocate cinema has ever had. Both in, in making films that people fall in love with, introducing people to other films, and, and sort
2: preserving of... Films. Preserving films, as, exactly. He's like and, one of the heads of the Film Foundation.
0: And yeah, we will uh, definitely hear about that a, a bit later on. It's, it's an amazing uh, foundation. But the thing that amazes me about him is that in terms of quality and quantity, no one has matched him. Like, think about his peers, people like Spielberg and Coppola. You know, Coppola had a run of like five perfect films or something in his early career, but they've all had dips in their mm. career. The only. There aren't a lot of filmmakers who have, been, who have had a perfect run throughout their whole career. You've got people like Kubrick and Elaine May, who I think you could make an argument for. But they have very limited filmographies. Like Kubrick, you know, if you're going to spend 18 years making a film, it's probably going to turn out pretty well. <laughs> um, Scorsese never stops. like He keeps making films. Mm. And I cannot identify a dip in his career. At least creatively. I know he had a, you know, a fi- some financial dips, but he's ridden the waves. Of he's, he has, he's not out of date. For someone who started filmmaking in the 60s, he is still incredibly relevant. He's making films that feel more energetic than films coming from 20-year-old filmmakers. He, he is an absolute marvel of cinema in the way he's ridden and adapted, but never changed the core of who he is.
2: Mm. Yeah, he's never subverted himself to kind of get down with the kids or anything. Like, there's, there's not, this is my, you know, like Spielberg and Ready Player One. yeah. There's nothing like that in Scorsese's filmography. There is not
0: a yeah, ready player one in, in the, that is
2: true. Like not even Hugo. Like Hugo is so full of Scorsese. Yeah. And it's so full of classic film lore and it's so and yet it's so innovative and 2011 at the same time as it is classic and Marty so he's never ever done that he's, nobody's, I agree no, Nobody's ever had a sustained run for 50 years Of just making consistently mm. At the very least very good And at the most masterpieces And making masterpieces in every decade
0: Yeah, totally and he's, and he's someone who He's got an identifiable style throughout his whole career And yet he can switch from comedy, drama, romance, horror You know, he, he can do pretty much everything And... I'm going to talk about more about what an inspiration he has been to me in terms of uh, uh, appreciating a film. But the other thing and I don't think I realized this until we started putting the show together is he's possibly the only filmmaker with this level of output who you could legitimately say that almost every one of his films is someone's favorite.
7: Hmm. I cannot
0: think of anyone else like again Kubrick but he didn't make yeah. you know a film a year. And that is is fascinating and I think yeah, bol- bolsters the argument that he he is, in an objective sense, if such a thing exists, mm. the GOAT. The greatest of all time.
2: He has as great a <laughs> claim as anybody that's ever lived. Yeah. Let's put it that Like At the very least, like, I can't think of too many people whose opinions I trust who say Scorsese's a hack or Scorsese's a... Mm. You know, oh, he's spent his career ripping off everybody and therefore his stuff is, you know, vapid or whatever. Like He's always... Everybody at least has to pay some mark of respect to the fact that this guy has some serious skill and some serious knowledge and is a craftsman par excellence. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the worst thing you could say about him is that he isn't your kind of filmmaker. Yes, yeah. Which, you know, my general feeling when I think about Scorsese is that he doesn't make my kind of films. Like the machismo, the violence, the coke fueled excess... Mm. There's a lot of male energy in his films. A lot of the stories aren't my kind of stories. But then, you know, there's also the fact that he made a brilliant adaptation of one of my favourite books of all time, The Age of Innocence. And Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Mm. Female, films with strong female themes and protagonists. And, you know, some other beautiful films that we will talk about. So, like, although I always think about him as the gangster filmmaker you know, making all these gang crime films that I just don't really care about, Mm. he can also make, he can make anything. And he can make, anything he makes is going to be of quality. Yes.
2: Yes. And that's the thing. You can look at it and go, oh, God, gangsters again, I don't care. But you can pick it apart and sort of go, but this is beautifully done and that's beautifully done and I just don't care about Mm. what's happening at the heart of it. Mm. But as a craftsman, he's, yeah
0: as good as we get absolutely and and there is something for everyone in there i think and that's why we've done something a little different for the the last big show instead of having one guest we've got all of them or nearly all of them oh like you know a fair proportion of the alumni of hell is for hyphenates so what you're telling me is yeah this is literally hell is for hyphenates the last waltz oh my god yes
1: where are they all have you got them hiding uh, in, the in
0: the other room yeah. <laughs> they're in the other room they're um, in the green room uh, so it's an entire building across so we went back and asked obviously we couldn't we, we couldn't get everyone and we didn't have time for everyone um, but we went back and asked a whole bunch of our past guests to contribute to this episode we asked them for a minute two minutes three minutes whatever on their favourite Scorsese thing we left it wide open we said it could be a film could be a shot could be a scene could be something he does in all of his films or he only did once you know as long as it was Scorsese-related, we wanted to hear from people. Some people t- pick two things. Uh, we might hear from people more than once. But basically, the episode is going to be peppered with past voices from hyphenates. And to give you an idea of what it's going to sound like, it's going to sound a little something like this. Brian Trenchard-Smith, filmmaker.
8: What you get with Martin Scorsese's 50-year-plus body of work are highly entertaining dramas that reflect the sensibility of their creator, and his preoccupation with moral dilemmas. I enjoy his dark themes, his unsympathetic leading characters that you can't take your eyes off. Clearly he is fascinated by the enigma of religion and the perils of hubris.
0: Garth Franklin, film journalist and editor.
9: I would say my favourite Scorsese thing is his pragmatism. Uh, Many filmmakers can be so militant with both their storytelling technique and the way they work that it can often stifle a life out of a movie. Uh, And as an audience member, you really feel it. Not Scorsese. He's someone who knows not just films, but life inside out. He's been both praised and rejected by Hollywood. And so he approaches filmmaking very practically and with the ease of someone to whom this is all second nature. And as a result, his films feel really alive. And that's why I love them. It bleeds through into sort of the themes and content of his work as well, where he avoids the easy moralizing. So much of that work explores the beauty and frustrations of masculinity with those invisible and annoyingly anxiety inducing codes of conformity. Uh, he doesn't romanticize or fetishize that. His heroes are all flawed but very human types, and the films themselves are really about the realization and rationalization of their struggles on a day to day level. He's a director I really admire for his ability to roll with the inevitable punches that come with movie making. And he's able to adapt well enough that I don't see him ever really retiring from his passion. And I'm very thankful for that.
0: So, yeah, that's basically how the show is going to go. <laughs> nice. Um, okay. So, uh, from a film student
2: in NYU in the late 60s, Scorsese proved a prodigy pretty much right away uh, with his trio of shorts um there was this debut short in 1963 what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this his second short uh 1964's it's not just you murray and 1967's a big shave and with each one he'd win more prizes each one got more i think the big shave was uh, accepted to a few experimental film festivals overseas um it's not just you murray won the i think it won the usc prize the best short student short of that year so already he's sort of getting this notice. I'm a huge fan of it's not just you, Murray. Mm. That just seems it's. I remember watching it at. Do you guys remember Eat Carpet on yeah, SBS, yeah, yeah. the uh, short film show they used to show on Saturday Night? And they had a thing for a while. They were calling Auto TV during the '90s, and they were showing shorts by famous filmmakers. And I, you know, me being a uh, you know budding film buff was always kind of eager to see. And it's not just you, Murray. Was one of the first ones I saw, and it watching it late at night and this like unearthed Scorsese work and so rough and raw and it, I just loved it because it, it taps into the 1940s Warner Brothers gangster stuff that he's interested in taps into Fellini it taps into that sense of family you know things like you know Murray's mother trying to feed him spaghetti through the through the prison bars which are chicken wire <laughs> it's short and it's like um I just yeah I really really adore it and I
0: feel like it is a signifier for what's to come Alexandra Helen Nicholas film critic and author
10: It's always interesting to me to watch the work of superstar celebrity filmmakers before they became superstar celebrity filmmakers. There's something so revealing and honest in work that is somehow naked, stripped back of the brand name credentials that would later become part and parcel to watching a quote-unquote Scorsese film. Even if Scorsese never made another movie, The Big Shave, for me at least, is an extraordinary standalone film. Running at around six minutes, Scorsese made this film at Uh, film school in New York and its alternate title Viet 67 belies the widely assumed metaphor that underscores the film. You do even the most cursory reading about this movie and the standard position is that it's a brutal critique of American involvement in the Vietnam War and the willing bloody destruction of its own youth, which of course it is. But just watching it on its own merits today, I'm always really struck at how erotic this film is in many ways, just as close to someone like Kenneth Anger, as it is to later horror filmmakers like Wes Craven or David Cronenberg, and certainly for me more aligned to these kinds of filmmakers than directors so often listed alongside Scorsese as central to New Hollywood. So the big shave, of course, is pretty simple. A young man shaves in front of the mirror until he starts piercing and peeling off his own skin, all to the soundtrack of Bunny Berrigan's 1937 Gershwin classic, I Can't Get Started. There is, of course, a total disconnect between the smooth orchestral music and the violence we see on-screen. As banal as the action itself is to begin with at least, there's a kind of cabaret, even burlesque quality, to the spectacle of actor Peter Bernuth's topless body, as his naked form is offered to the viewer as the source of some kind of visual pleasure. We see this a lot with women's bodies in film, of course, so it's already quite unusual to see this kind of cabaret with a young male body. The film is unsurprisingly perhaps immaculately edited and clearly storyboarded within an inch of its life, which in retrospect we can see as early evidence of the kind of painstaking craft Scorsese would later become renowned for. But as much as The Big Shave is often dismissed as a kind of primitive glimpse into a burgeoning talent and a flair for political criticism, I've always felt as a horror film on its own merits there's much, much more going on in this film on the sexual politics front than it's often given credit for.
2: So then, after those prize-winning shorts, he debuted with a privately funded, virtually student feature film mm. called Who's That Knocking at My Door, otherwise known as I Call First, otherwise known as JR. Had a few titles and distribution wars. That was in 1967, and it is also the film debut of one Harvey Keitel.
0: Yeah. Mm. I did not realise how far back there... Like that, this, this more, than, more than De Niro. Yeah this is over a decade this is this the longest director actor collaboration because that is well De Niro worked with De Palma first
2: that's like, right yes
0: de, three of De Palma's first four
2: movies have I de, de Niro that. in them yeah. so it's like De Niro started with De Palma and Keitel started at the same time as, with Scorsese so yeah what is that 50, 67 we're, we're getting and now they're working together on the Irishman yeah yeah and it's, it's extraordinary
0: collaboration yeah.
2: it's it's really interesting cuz he's taking on a lot of themes with this debut and uh, by the way is there anyone that calls their shot from frame 1 like literally the first shot of the first feature is a bunch of religious um icon like um religious statues and mm. uh, idols on a dresser <laughs> the first thing you see is catholicism it's like wow you just went bang call it but i think this film is actually dialed in Many ways to a moment we're having now. I think there's a comment on sort of what we now kind of took all toxic masculinity. Mm. That whole it's very critical of the whole boys will be boys thing.
7: Yeah,
2: you kind of got Keitel and his mates like you know harassing people and having these jokes and beating each other up, and waving guns at one another. This is, and this was all set in Scorsese's Little Italy neighborhood. And this wasn't you know now we've seen a million stories set in this place, mm-hmm. but back then that wasn't the case. Yeah, and and this sort of neo realist. Take on on Little Italy was actually really new, mm. and not only the tos- toxic masculinity thing, but also the fact that the whole thing circles around um, uh, the other lead character um, played by Zena Bethune, who is a girl who um, that Kaitel's character falls in love with, and she's from the other side of the tracks. She's kind of a waspish type girl, and and very lovely. And to and then there's a moment she confides in him that she's been raped. And he reacts in this really terrible way. He mm. doesn't believe her. He's got this weird kind of Madonna Whore kind of construct in his head and and feels like she somehow has to apologize for this. And even the way the, there's a there's a depiction, it's almost in, in still it's a scene and then it goes in like stills of the rape, which is actually really well shot and really harrowing and not mm. at all exploitative. And, and so that whole thing of women not being believed yeah. and the toxic masculinity critical of the boys will be boys thing really feeds into our present moment in a way yeah. that's quite astounding there is a really random sequence in the middle of it where a naked woman's on a bed and Keitel's walking around and, and oh, scored right. to the yeah. end by the doors yeah. and I think that was something that was mandated by the distributor I think the distributor basically said I want boobs in this and so he had to go and shoot this extraneous scene because you look at it it's got nothing to do with anything but the film around
0: it I think like, it's rough as guts but I think it's really strong yeah absolutely and those and those first two, even though like Mean Streets is sort of the big first film that put him on the map you know those, those first two films um, and
2: the one we haven't mentioned is the a box, second film Boxcar Bertha Yeah, uh, which speaking of producers who want boobs and things was produced by Roger Corman who had much the same edict I enjoyed the hell out of Boxcar Bertha it, it, particularly it a Rewatch it, it definitely it's feels so like fun.
0: the work of a filmmaker still trying to figure out what type of films he wants
2: to make and working within that Corman system Yeah, but like the the four leads are all terrific. They have a really great dynamic. It's Barbara Hershey, David Carradine, Barry Primus, and Bernie Casey, who are all really great. You know, he's got the violence in there. He's got some religious iconography. He's got a crucifixion in there. He's got his cameo in there. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah, I had so much fun with this film, and I think there is, you know, because it's obviously about someone who was a union force, you know, um, mm. and kind of was a bit of a Robin Hood style, style figure. And a female lead as well, which is sort of, you know, not the norm for Scorsese. Like, as much as it is sort of a fun, good old boy, post-Bonnie and Clyde kind of exploitation film, there's also, he doesn't ignore the political and um, social and racial undercurrents of that time as well, and they all filter through. I thought it was a really nifty little flick.
0: And yeah, and yeah, Keitel and De Niro, this is the first time uh, they worked together, uh, Scorsese and De Niro worked together, was Mean Streets. Uh, But again, it's really, I think, Harvey Keitel's film? Yeah. Perry Cummings, actor and writer.
11: Being an actor, I think the one thing that really appeals to me about um, Scorsese's films is the collaborations that he has with particular actors. And I know there's been a lot said about Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci and people like that, but for me, the one thing that I thank Martin Scorsese for is introducing me to the supremely wonderful Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel for me is the type of actor who always surprises me about how good he is and I think he's a perfect actor for Martin Scorsese because he's surprisingly sweet which I think sometimes the bleak stories that Scorsese tells they need a little bit of sweetness particularly in his characters that become particular badasses like in Taxi Driver there's still a real charm and a sweetness about Harvey Keitel. M- my partner made this mistake we and saw some um, scorsese films that i hadn't seen at a retrospective at acme and he was so excited to show me goodfellas but unfortunately he showed me mean streets before and uh, goodfellas just lost appeal after seeing the magnificence that is harvey keitel in mean streets nothing really measured up to that amazing performance of his and i think that the really wonderful thing for me, is that actors get the opportunity to grow, to experiment, and to surprise us with what they do. That's what I love about Martin Scorsese. David Caesar,
0: filmmaker. Uh,
12: Well, I grew up with Martin Scorsese films, and I was kind of, as most teenage film lovers are, fascinated by especially Taxi Driver. But when I saw Mean Streets, I really, really fell in love with his work and um, I really got excited when I sort of found out it was his second film and when I got to make my second film, a film called Idiot Box, I very much saw it as a film that... um, was was in some ways a homage to Mean Streets. I saw the character, the main, one of the main characters in it, Kev, who was played by Ben Mendelssohn as a homage to uh, Johnny Boy, who was played by Robert De Niro, that sort of idea of someone who's completely out of control and, and doesn't want to play by society's rules. And, but he's incredibly charismatic. And I, I really was in, excited by that. And, and and so for me, Martin Scorsese was a touchstone and very much a, a really important influence on my career and, and, and remains so to this day.
1: Well, in Main Streets, I mean, it's really a kind of bromance between De Niro and Keitel. And, you know, the, the female character... She's in competition with this bad boy who mm. keeps you know drawing kaitel in, and Kaitel just has this kind of innocence in this he's trying to be good and yet he's a gangster it's It's just a really beautiful performance, as Perry said, and um yeah i I love this film
2: yeah i uh, yeah, I adore it too. It's one of those films it gets better for me every time I watch it, yeah. and it's sort of like it it's definitely a bromance, but it's almost like that it's a whole Catholic it's all responsibility like he feels. Like, almost like a saint. Like, it's like, this is a load I have to carry. I have to make sure he's okay. Because yeah. he is... And it's like a mice and men story, really. Mm, you know, it's yeah. like, he's Lenny to Keitel's George, you know. And he's like, he's, he's got to shoulder the load of this guy. And if he fails, then he's failed as a Catholic. He's failed as a... Mm. Um, and so, again, Scorsese links that in beautifully. I love the, the origin story of this, which is basically John Cassavetes, who uh, Scorsese looked up to they'd had a bit of a relationship and um, uh, he just watched mean, um, Boxcar Bertha and sought Scorsese out and said, look, okay, you did a good job but never make a piece of shit like that again. Do your own work. <laughs> Essentially. I was like, yeah, you, like, it's like, that's great. I don't want to see you making that shit again. And, and then, out of that, he and, went and, and made Mean Streets.
0: Absolutely. And, and Mean Streets is, I think, the key to understanding what made him so popular is that he's a guy who grew up watching Italian neo-realist films as well as, you know, a, a lot of other genres. But, The lesson he took from that, which feels very familiar because I've seen a lot of film students take the wrong lessons from things they love.
7: Mm.
0: He didn't say, I I love, uh, I I need to make a film about Sicilian fishermen, you know, a world (laughs) that I don't know. He took the lessons of that about people living in a world, like in post war Italy, like you work with what you've got. And he saw them working with what they've got. They don't have access to a studio, they made films about the world around them. Mm. And he made films about the world that he knew. George Viscus, filmmaker and lecturer.
13: When I first um, started teaching at RMIT and uh, I have the, the doco on on him, what really astounded me in the doco on film noir, he has little bits and pieces throughout it and he speaks about um, why he really loves that particular genre. And what I love about it is that he talks about personal experience moments of in his life early life where he'd walk down in the in the neighborhood and sure you'd see a a body in the in the street or a body in the gutter and that became almost like the norm uh, for him and he says
14: i guess i'm responding uh to um hearing my uncle speak or my aunt or my father talk about certain films that they liked, but they said, oh, they but that scene, he went inside, you know what they did is, no, they, would ne- they never show that though. No, they would never show that kind of stuff. They'll never do that. You know, and they'll never show the, uh, uh, the real workings of, uh, of um, how these guys in organized crime deal with each other or the real workings of somebody who really owes money and uh, tries to get, so my intention was always, why not? Why not really show it?
13: And for the first time I had the inkling, so this is where it starts from. Here was my gateway into Scorsese's love of crime and that he took it with Mean Streets which was probably the very first film I ever saw of him of his um, at uh, the Melbourne Film Festival back in, what was it, 73 or so two years after Godfather comes on out and there's this instant sort of rapport between the Godfather, heavily romantic but bloody great and Mean Streets where it's rough and it's coarse and it's vulgar and seeing this docker that I play to my students when I always tackle film noir, here is the um, the key to understanding his world, you know, in our film. And every time I see it, every time he says, "But well, they'll never go, uh, you know, behind that door, I okay? go, yeah, so that's your inkling, that, that's your own sort of visual poetry within your own films. Here it is, you know, and I love that. I absolutely adore that. And it's always like, whenever I hear it, it's like the first time I I hear it. And I talk to the students about that that sort of idea, trying to bring their own personal experiences of what they see, what their visions are, into their own stories. They're not going to turn out to be Scorsese, but, jeez, that's good, isn't it? I mean, he stands out there, you know, he stands... He just stands out, you know.
0: It's interesting because he, he then does a complete left turn and, and there was a story I, I saw about Ellen Burstyn, basically could pick, who directed Else Doesn't Live Here Anymore and the thing that made her go with Scorsese, she was looking at this guy going, he's a real machismo-type filmmaker and apparently you know, she said to him, what do you know about films about women or something? And he said, no, nothing, but I want to learn. Mm. And it was that just sort of that eagerness to like, here's something I haven't tried before. Oh, um, wow. And uh, she went, yeah, I gotta go with this guy. Pollyanna McIntosh, actor and filmmaker.
6: Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore is my favorite Scorsese movie. There, I said it. I was gonna say it was my favorite early Scorsese movie, but it's not true. Those incredible vibrant colors, that, that cinematography, the drama and the sense of closeness that you feel to the characters is intense and hypnotizing and there's warmth and there's humor. And there's that sexy Chris Christopherson and the brilliant Alfred Lunt playing Alice's son. Alice, of course, is Ellen Bernstein, burst in. I always want to say Ellen Bernstein like she's Lena Bernstein's mother. She is incredible as Alice. And I didn't want to really shoot guns and I didn't really want to beat anybody up, but I loved those Scorsese gangster movies. But with Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, he brings me a character that I can get fully involved with. Um, who could be me? who wants to be an artist, and is a waitress. And I think it's a beautiful film, and if you haven't seen it yet, you're in for an absolute treat. I think that film has the most often quoted uh, line that I ever say, which, is, which no one ever gets. But I hope you'll join me by watching it and then taking up the, the game. It's Alfred Lutter playing her son, and he says, she asks him something, she seems unsure about something, and he says, think real hard, lady it'll come to ya. I wonder what happened to Alfred Lutter? Probably got another job. Enjoy it. That's why it's my favourite Scorsese movie because it's very human and it's very involving and it's an amazing character study of a woman and it looks and feels just as good as, uh, as the rest of his work. Dig it! Yeehaw! <laughs> Oh that was brilliant. <laughs> I've got nice. to say
1: that Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore is probably my favorite Scorsese film now that I just watched it for this some um, for this podcast I hadn't seen it before. It's amazing. Mm. And it could be because I'm the mother of a teenage boy and the relationship that's depicted between the mother and son it's kind of this road movie it's it's so unexpected it's so fresh. It's it's just a beautiful beautiful film i agree with pollyanna watch it
0: yeah i yeah i watched it for the first time for this as well and, oh, oh wow. Yeah, you've I never seen, seen it, it before oh, oh wow so i mean that's why we do the show to catch up on these yeah uh, excuse to see these. i saw this about
2: 20 years ago and loved it and i saw it again recently and i loved most of it until the last 10 minutes mm. and maybe it's yeah maybe it's a little 2018 think uh, 2019 thinking mm. but it was like why does she need to, we've spent the whole movie showing that she doesn't need to do this, but now she does this Mm. every, you know, I'm trying not to spoil anything, but everything else I love. I mean, God, everything in Mel and Ruby's diner is just Mm -hmm. fantastic. The Mm. relationship between Alice and Flo and Vera is amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Um, And the whole thing with, um, yeah, the relationship with the son is fantastic mm. and, and really felt, yeah.
1: We've got to mention this early performance by Jodie Foster. Yeah. In just a few scenes as this androgynous very early teenager, um, wise-cracking, confident. She steals every scene she's in and it's clear she's going to be a big star. Yeah.
2: Do you think Marty got really amused with her at some point and just went just do, do whatever you want to do. Just do it. Just just break <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, you know, return to her for Taxi Driver. I just felt watching her that Marty was very amused by her and yeah, just yeah. kind of let her do stuff. Because she's great. She yeah. is.
0: Also, a young Laura Dern, by the way, who is a... Uh, really? Yeah, as a kid, just as an extra. And she ate... I had no idea. She, she was just eating ice cream in the background and she did, like, 20 takes and I ate ice cream in each one. And uh, Susie so said, you know, well, she's going to be a star. If she can do that, she can do anything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's great.
0: Um, and I love that... Alan Burstyn's
2: not a great singer mm. in the movie. I like that she she's kind of okay. and yeah. she's mediocre and that's part of it. You know, it's all this vision you have of yourself and maybe you're not that person that you think you are.
1: It's a really nuanced portrayal it, of motherhood too. Yeah. I mean, we don't see mothers who who express that kind of irritation and frustration and just that easy warmth with their teenagers. I think it's still something that we don't see that much of.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that really distinguishes that movie. Yeah, I think yeah. that stuff is fantastic.
0: And and yeah, of course, you know, Jodie Foster so famously was in his next film, Taxi Driver, uh, which still is... see, Rochelle. Have you marvelled at this for the last two years, King of the Segways? Oh my god, such a <laughs> pro. King of Segways is my favourite Scorsese film. Uh, the, <laughs> the sequel to King of Comedy. Don't many people know that? Um, <laughs>
1: I just couldn't move on to that one. <laughs>
0: But yeah, I mean, Taxi Driver, which again, you don't want to talk about a film that gets better on every viewing. Mm-hmm. Loved it the first time, but every subsequent viewing, it's just, the, the it just hits me in the face every time. The narration, the unreliable narrator, he's someone who's so great at, at not relying on narration because he uses the most unreliable narrator in Taxi Driver and then the most reliable one in Age of Innocence, I think. Mm. But just between, between that, that and the music and just the look of it, you, know, you, you talk about how much he, he sees 2019 from way back mm. in the past. The angry, disaffected young man who takes his frustration out with violence. And,
2: and doesn't know how to relate to women it, and doesn't yeah. know how to you know, comport himself in the civilised world. You know, he's got so many ideas and mm. so many things are...
1: He's the he's original sort of incel, isn't he? Kind yeah yeah <laughs> yeah
2: absolutely every I mean this is one of the best non horror horror movies ever made like I always found this more chilling than most horror films I've ever seen mm. if everybody's gonna throw down during this thing like their favorite Scorsese this is mine okay. really
15: yeah
2: this is but and it's you know in my top five all time favorite films. Wow. Of, yeah, I I just think this film is perfect. Yeah. This film is don't change a frame. Perfect from the music, all the choices, every music, uh, every music cue, every performance, every shot of of um the the thing is just dripping with mood and decay and and this New York that's both seductive in a horrible dark way but also repellent and putting you inside the head of a madman. You know, mm. you're strapped. To the seat next to this person, and this is your guide for the next two hours. Good luck, <laughs> um, and you as you're travelling through his psyche, and he's both sad and pitiful, and also disgusting, but also wanting to do good. And it's just so like, I mean, you can't get more complex yeah. than than Travis Pickle, yeah. And you know, everyone from from Albert Brooks throwing shots over here to Sybil Shepherd just being wonderful and. And quite nuanced and, and and constantly trying to negotiate this guy, how to work around him, What you know, the, all these bizarre nuances that are being thrown at her and, and adjusting and volleying them back beautifully. Also, I mean, uh, Harvey Keitel as the, yeah. the world's most disgusting <laughs> pimp. Proce- um, 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 <laughs> he is just horrific and also so charismatic. But also one of the great, and this is something I feel we should mention, Scorsese is one of the best directors as actors I think when he gets in the zone Mm. and this his performance in Taxi Driver is one of the scariest things I've ever ever seen on film yeah him looking up at that window and the things he's saying and the way he's doing and it's just like he's literally and with that weird little moustache and beard of his Mm. he looks like a demon yeah and even Travis is rattled by him and it's so uh, it's just ah I love this film so much
0: Kate Wolf actor
16: The problem was the first Scorsese film that I actually watched which is kind of shameful but the first introduction to Scorsese was The Aviator and I hated it and <laughs> and, and I re- I did, I just didn't like it and I think after that I think maybe I'd seen you know I I'd sort of been around like parties and stuff and vaguely sort of seen things but not really co- I hadn't really inv- I hadn't really so sort of sat down and properly watched a lot of his work so I I think because I had seen Aviator and I didn't like it I just presumed that I just wouldn't like his work and then I you know I got you know a free ticket to see Taxi Driver and I was like you've got to see Taxi Driver it's you know it's iconic you've got to see it and it was showing in the cinema and, and I was like well you know this is the perfect way to see it and watching it in the cinema and then just the opening score by Bernard Herrmann as you know it's it's it was so electric, you know, it was kind of like it, kind of anticipation sort of building, you know, in the beginning of a film. And I'd never experienced it before. I'd never seen a film do it like that. It's kind of – it sort of reminded me a little bit of, you know, when you are listening to a thunderstorm or lightning and you're sort of – you're waiting for the next kind of clap of thunder and you don't know when it's going to come. And it's sort of like – it sort of starts off in that kind of – at that kind of frequency – And with the score, because I was in a cinema and and the sound, it was hitting, like the vibrations were hitting my ribcage, you know, so my whole body felt like, you know, shit, like I am, I feel like, you know, this. you're actually kind of part of the film in that sort of sense. And I'm really glad that I saw the film, you know, on the big screen because I don't think I would have had that experience. You know, that was a little extra touch that I don't think I would have had if I watched it maybe at home. With a you know a, a mild kind of stereo system, you know it really that kind of that build into the film was was extraordinary, it, you know and it, and like I said I've never seen that done before, and I love you know whether it's it's cinema or it's a theatre piece or you know whatever it is where it kind of it it starts off on the right kind of foot. And it really like it gets you at that kind of, oh, we're going somewhere different, you know, this is really exciting. Your whole body is kind of present. And, and yeah, that, I think, and that was when thing, I think I, my, obviously my perception of Scorsese changed <laughs> after seeing Taxi Driver. Because um, it was, yeah, it was an amazing film. And then after that, you know, I, I watched, you know, I watched Goodfellas. And I re-watched a lot of things and I, I definitely saw it differently. I'm glad that doing it that way it sort of changed my perception of him as a filmmaker. I think I think it's always really difficult if you see a director's later work because it's it's never going to be quite as rebellious as their earlier kind of films. You know, when you've got something to prove when you're a young filmmaker, that's where the exciting work, you know, that's where it comes into play. Whereas I think once you're... You're much older, and maybe you just get a little bit more comfortable, or you know, you sort of your films are a little bit more well packaged. And I wish that Bernard Herrmann hadn't died, you know, <laughs> pretty much shortly after that film was made, because he was he was also an extraordinary. I mean, it, what an amazing collaboration as well between those two.
0: Ian Barr, critic and film programmer.
5: When it comes to the big formative films and filmmakers that shaped my taste at a younger age, I find it hard to remember the specific ways in which they were formative, since a lot of the time it was a matter of me reading up beforehand on them, learning about why they're a big deal, and then seeing if my experience of the work matched those preconceived notions. But Scorsese is a bit of an exception to this in that it was one particular camera movement in Taxi Driver that clarified to me one way, at least, that cinema could be so exciting. Um, It's a semi-famous one, so I hope that none of the other guests on this episode have covered it. But it's the bit when Travis is trying to make amends with Betsy after taking her on a date at the porn theatre, and he's calling her from a payphone in a building's lobby, and the camera starts to make a lateral track from him making the call as his words become more and more desperate, and then finishes its brief, smooth tracking movement at the corridor ending with the door to the street outside, stays stationary for a few moments, and then Travis comes into frame and exits the building. Now, I've gone back and forth over the years about whether it's the popular reading of the camera leaving him out of sight because his pain is too much for us to witness at that moment, which is kind of the reading that's supported by Scorsese himself, or if there's a kind of mordant literalness to the camera's movement and that it's moving to show him the door. Either way, it was, I think, the first time, or at least the most forcefully, I had felt a film's formal choices serving in as a sort of wordless narration or commentary. And it was also a formative moment because it was as great an example as any that filmmaking doesn't have to be invisible or subliminal. What that camera movement suggests instead is that being required to contemplate the formal decisions being made can lead to a deeper involvement with the narrative and the ideas at play, and that being taken out of the story can mean being taken to a different and richer space entirely. Josh Nelson, writer and critic.
17: Saturday, April 13th, 1996. The day Scorsese made me a criminal. It all began with a review for Taxi Driver. Scorsese masterpiece retains pristine force, the headline declared. The name Scorsese sounded familiar, but back then I probably couldn't have told you why. I was 17 years old living on a cinematic diet of VHS horror rentals and multiplex blockbusters. Granted, I'd seen The Age of Innocence a few years earlier, but that was purely motivated by a rather impure desire for Winona Ryder, an unhealthy teen obsession that largely persists to this day. Still, this review for Taxi Driver grabbed my attention. Critic Barbara Creed described the film as a profoundly disturbing study of psychosis and urban loneliness before going on to quote the infamous All the Animals Come Out at Night monologue. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. And with that, I was sold. There was just one catch. The film was rated R, meaning I'd almost certainly be carded and refused entry. Months shy of my 18th birthday, I was left with two options. Stay at home, resentful of a system that oppresses youthful filmgoers, or embark on a path of criminality. I chose the latter. It's remarkable what one could achieve back then, using only an inkjet printer, contact adhesive, a penknife, and high school ID. The end result was never going to fool a liquor store attendant, but for a cinema, I thought somewhat smugly that it looked fairly convincing. I pocketed the felonious evidence and set off towards the now defunct Lumiere cinema on Lonsdale Street. By the time I reached the front of the ticker box queue, my criminal bravado had wilted to nervous visions of a life behind bars. My parents were going to be so disappointed. "'One student ticket to Taxi Driver?' I asked. The attendant immediately requested my ID. I reached across with sweaty palms and passed over my freshly forged handiwork." holding my breath and half expecting him to reach below the counter to a concealed button, alerting the police to my crime, who'd then burst into the cinema, eagerly dragging me away in handcuffs. Instead, he barely gave it a glance, before taking my cash and sliding my ticket back over the counter. The deed was done. I was a criminal, and I'd gotten away with it. The cinema was already packed when I got in. I found a seat in the very front row, craning my neck at an improbable angle towards the screen. And then it began the steady drumbeat of Bernard Herrmann's score, the front grill of a taxi sliding ominously through street smoke, De Niro's face bathed in red light, looming large above me. As the film went on, I found myself helplessly identifying with Travis's distorted worldview. The frustration, the loneliness, the desire for some semblance of direction. On and on, the film moved towards its inexorable bloody climax. There was no escape. I was God's captivated viewer. Walking out of the cinema felt like walking into a changed world. The angst-ridden voice in my head was attempting to speak in melancholic refrains that mimicked Paul Schrader's screenplay. No film had ever had such a profound effect on me. When I returned to school, I remember confessing my identification with Bickle to one of my teachers, an admission that was met with both shock and a string of follow-up questions regarding my well-being. It was only later that I comprehended the level of concern that my rather naive admission had prompted less than a decade earlier, this particular teacher had taught the individual responsible for the Hoddle Street Massacre, an act of sustained gun violence by a disturbed 19-year-old that left seven people dead and 19 injured. So to say my confession struck a chord is perhaps putting it mildly. The parallels between the events leading up to Hoddle Street and those of Scorsese's film are at once unmistakable and perhaps unsurprising. Travis Bickle, the one-time symbol of a peculiar post-Vietnam War American psychopathology, has over the years assumed a near-universal resonance. Incidents of young men resorting to acts of extreme violence as a means of achieving some personal or cultural renewal are today an altogether commonplace occurrence. And though I had not emerged from that fateful screening with a gun fetish or a desire to quench the sins of the world with ritual violence, the film had flicked a switch inside me. As for Taxi Driver, in spite of the film's chequered history, one that intersects with presidential assassination attempts and obsessive fans, I still hold firm that films like Scorsese's don't produce Travis Bickles, so much as they attempt to understand them and the cultural pathologies they represent. If Scorsese is guilty of anything, it's of making a criminal out of someone who endeavoured to see his work on the big screen, a sin for which he can probably be absolved. Andrew Kevin Walker, Screenwriter
18: for me, Martin Scorsese is one of those great filmmakers who lets you look at movies as art and not be afraid to consider movies as artwork, which I feel is as important, maybe more important now than ever. Taxi Driver, in my opinion, is a perfect film. It also, along with Midnight Cowboy, for better or worse, was a movie that really informed my expectation of what it was going to be like to live in... Uh, New York City when I moved there from suburban Pennsylvania in 1986, having studied film at Penn State. I do feel like New York City in in the late 80s had a lot in common with the Ford to New York City drop dead 1970s, and then to have Scorsese literally shooting Goodfellas uh, a few steps away from my best friend's apartment in Queens. Soon afterwards, for me to walk down Steinway Street and go see you know, this masterpiece, Goodfellas, in the, in the multiplex uh, in Astoria, so close to where so much of the film had been made, I am convinced that these were some of the touchstones that helped me as a naive screenwriter wannabe from suburban Pennsylvania fool himself into believing he could actually have a career as a writer.
0: Glenn Dunks, writer and critic.
7: I think Scorsese's best film, as well as my personal favourite, is Taxi Driver. And that is for all of the obvious reasons that I am sure you have discussed already, and for other reasons too numerous to detail. However, the film that I went to first in my brain was the film that followed Taxi Driver, 1977's New York, New York. Scorsese is a director who, whether you agree with the sentiment or not, does cop flack for making films predominantly about men that sideline women. Perhaps expectedly, those that do, films like Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and The Age of Innocence, for example, are rarely held up amongst his finest works, although I would personally rank them as such. So of course, having said that, naturally what I think works so great in New York, New York is Liza Minnelli particularly considering that the film more broadly is a tribute to Manelli's mother, Judy Garland. Manelli gives, I think, one of the absolute best performances in a Scorsese movie. Now, granted, it's not the sort of performance that we tend to expect from a Scorsese film, at least these days now that there is an additional four decades of cinema under his belt, but for me it easily ranks alongside the pinnacles among his filmography. Manelli is also what keeps the film in check, The production history of this film is well-documented, and I think those frenetic times are well-represented in Robert De Niro's performance. He essentially is the actorly embodiment of its coke-fueled production. But Manelli's performance then feels even greater, that she was able to remain that laser-focused while dealing with all of the swirling around her, as well as the emotions that would naturally arise from essentially being asked to play your deceased legend of a parent. The film's three most iconic set pieces, the musical sequences of happy endings, but the world goes round, and of course the titular song, all sentimentally in a way that belies the crazed reputation. They are calm, focused, and feature a depth of emotion, or perhaps more specifically, feminine emotion, rarely exhibited in a Scorsese picture.
0: Eloise Ross, Academic and Film Programmer.
19: Maybe my favourite entire movie by Martin Scorsese, um, even though I love a whole bunch of his other stuff as well, which is his 1977 film New York, New York, which for me has some of the strongest resonances, probably because of Liza Minnelli. Let's face it, and there's a sense of her recapturing the spirit of Judy Garland in an a Star Is Born type narrative. For someone like me, emotionally connected to Hollywood and particularly the history of musicals or melodramas, this might be enough. Uh, but there's also something else, which is the thing, the kind of um, ephemeral thing that makes this film uh, very much a Scorsese one, even though he pays a great homage to a lot of uh, film history. Um, and that's that through all the glitz and glamour, through all the sparkles and lame and fashion film fingernails and even with the stage, um, the stagey sound stage sets, he keeps New York dirty. Not quite as much as in Taxi Driver and Mean Streets, but that Scorsese sense is still there. His New York here is fashionable, but it's still gritty and kind of unsafe. And the only time that a sense of Tinseltown artifice really holds is when we see a collage of Francine Evans, which is Minnelli's decidedly normal name plastered on magazine covers and then we see her name on a broadway marquee for a self-referential hollywood film musical montage sequence it's kind of this really incredible thing um, to witness in this whole film while Monelli is the focus it still indulges in and critiques the masculine bravado of the entire world and the very world of filmmaking itself with a different but still thematically tied focus to a lot of scorsese's other stuff my favourite scene might be uh, the jazz nightclub drenched in red lights and brightened by neon wall hangings alongside a cool green bar in the back. It's a lurid 2 color Technicolour dream, a process and a period he also recalls in quite a bit of The Aviator. But back to the most obvious draw card here. You really can't beat a big final number by Liza. No!
15: Brainy Kidd, filmmaker and festival director. I'd like to talk about two of my favourite Scorsese films, one of which he directed and one of which he produced. They both come under the heading of lesser-known Scorsese and they're both coming from the tradition of melodrama to an extent. And they're also musicals. The first one is 1977's New York, New York, which is a remarkable piece of cinema starring Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli as an ill-suited but passionate couple. It's artistically bold and uncompromising, especially in the clarity of its depiction of a male artist who's simply unable to become a decent human being. Ego, machismo, masculinity, so many of the things that Scorsese has talked about in his crime-related films are here embodied in a musician. But as a statement, it has a great resonance. It's not about the fact that men are no good, but that the society breeds a certain type of man, hard, self-contained, incapable of real intimacy. So I suppose I see New York, New York as kind of a feminist statement. I don't know if that's how Scorsese saw it, but certainly the fact that it was not well received might have had something to do with why he's never tackled anything along these lines since. The other film I want to talk about is Alison Anders' masterpiece, Grace of My Heart, produced by Martin Scorsese. By all accounts, a film like this would not have happened without his support, and and that's a great thing that he's done with this. Not all that many great male auteurs of cinema really worry much about giving female directors a leg up, as far as I can tell, so he gets a lot of credit for this. Grace of My Heart has quite a lot in common with New York, New York, not least the big sweeping Hollywood feel and the fact that they're both biopics of fictional musicians. But Grace of My Heart is a little more pointed in its musical references. It's loosely based on the career of Carole King. Both of these songs are cries from the heart of women who are really at the end of their rope and they're just throwing it all out there in this sort of massive vomit of emotion and musicality and amazingness. I don't know how much this is a conscious process that both of these films have ended up with something like this as being an integral part of them. But I like it that in amongst the very male-driven stories that typify his career, Scorsese has left a little room for these intense moments of female expression. And I particularly appreciate that in one of these cases that involves simply handing the directing job over to somebody else in Alison Anders and letting her say exactly what she wanted to say and that I do count that as an achievement of Scorsese's
2: that's funny because Scorsese has always been a big supporter of diversity Mm. in filmmaking like he was an early mentor and continues to be I think for Spike Lee
0: yeah he produced Clockers yeah it's worth noting again that he he does get criticised for not always but like his, his films are always very white men centric and he gets criticised for that, but at the same time, he is like, Alison Anders, you, you know, I'm producing a mm. little spike. Like, you know, he's, he's sort of... You could make an argument either, either way for him, I think. In, but in he's also,
2: through the film foundation, he's restoring and and reveal... Like, films like the African film, I think it's Senegalese, Buki and mm. the... I don't know if I pronounced that right, but there it is. Um, Colour of Pomegranates, which we're going to hear about yeah. later. And uh, uh, the Housemaid from... Um, uh korea yeah. and like all of these films from around the world he's gotten released through criterion or he's had them remastered and shown yeah. and he's often been a mentor like he was very iliana douglas the actor was in yeah. a relationship with him for many years and she and she was very inspired like he was very encouraging of her to go and you know kind mm-hmm. of pursue her filmmaking kind of dreams and all that sort of thing and yeah, producing things like Grace of My Heart. And, um, and yeah, if you go through his producing credits he's and and through the stuff that his film foundation has backed, there is a huge amount of exposure to all races, creeds, colours, genders mm. um, in terms of the stuff that he gets out there and, and impl- um, supports. Mm. And I think that's a huge and not often uh, mentioned part of his totally. gift to the film world.
0: His next film was as director was Raging Bull we don't actually have anyone talking about it which is that's interesting. how has nobody talked about Raging Bull I don't, uh, you know it's just well that's the thing every every film is somebody's favourite and it was just one of those things the way it shook out I think if I had been a guest contributing to this there's a good chance that I would have talked about Raging Bull because for me that was the touchstone for me that was I'm not 100% sure if I've seen a Marty film up until I was at university and pulled the laser disc out of the wow. library and watched it in a little booth and then ended up watching it I think in the next few months I ended up watching it two more times uh, it was just I, I, I was just consumed by the brutality and the ballet of it it was, so, it was such a balletic film mm. and just how awful uh, and sympathetic De Niro's character was you know Jake LaMotta and it, it doesn't feel like a rewatchable film but I I, I keep ...finding myself drawn to it over and over again. And this is what Marty does,
2: though. It's, he, like, he's one of these people that... You know how tennis players, like, you know, there's either a big, big serve game... ...or a big net game, you know, it's serve and volley or it's net... He can do all it all, you know, and there's very few filmmakers that are like that. I think these days Paul Thomas Anderson is like that. Like, he's got the, you know, he makes he, dazzling visuals and great camera moves and brilliant music choices and all that sort of thing, but then he's so good with script and feeling and emotion, and all of his films in the end are based on these complicated relationships, mm. Mm. every single one of them. And I think, too, that's part of why he's, you know, has a stake to the claim of being the goat yeah, because he is so great at digging into those relationships and getting those performances out as actors it's funny that you mentioned like discovering Kathy Moriarty out of nowhere and she was like 19 at the time and the, the range she gets to play and that oh. and dig into that character that's one of the greatest performances of the 80s and why yeah. she didn't go into a bigger career I think it was just other directors maybe didn't know what how to cast her or what to mm-hmm. do with her or the roles weren't there but she's fantastic in this and it's funny that so many people are talking about, you know, they like, yeah, how male Scorsese is. But, you know, almost every time a woman pops up in one of his films, it's one of their best performances. Mm-hmm. Sharon Stone in yeah. Casino, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantoni on The Colour of Money. Um, you know, Cathy Moriani in this.
0: Absolutely. By the way, that siren in the background I organised to make it feel like a Scorsese movie. Um <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was listening to this um, interview with Thelma Schoonmaker, um, mm. Scorsese's longtime editor, of course, and um, she was saying that Raging Bull was her favourite of the films she had worked on with him because it was. she thought it was just the most beautiful of his films yeah. visually and the the rhythm of it. And I think we have to talk about the look of, of Raging Bull because oh, God, even yes. though it's an ugly film, it's also beautiful in the way it's put together and the black and white yeah. and the... That
2: opening, the slow mo shadow boxing with the opera music behind Mm. it is just so exquisite. I mean, and yeah, I mean, I know we might have somebody talking about Schoonmaker in future. We will, but I mean, talk about somebody that is a symbiotic relationship with a director. Like he is good because she is good. Having said that, before Schoonmaker, Marsha Lucas. Ex-Wife of George was his editor on mm. Alice Doesn't... L- I think Alice, definitely Taxi Driver, definitely New York, New York, mm. perhaps... He, yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. He's, again, he's working... These these key relationships with, with uh, women behind the camera as well. He's worked with Aaron, Ellen Curis as a cinematographer a, you know, a few times on various things. But, yeah, just, I mean, Schoonmaker is just... I mean, they, they, they push each other to a higher level.
0: Yeah. And we, we will definitely be talking about uh, their... Collaboration a bit more later but the, the thing that interested me watching that because I hadn't seen King of Comedy before oh, and wow. going from Same. Raging Bull <laughs> which I knew so well to King of Comedy which was a, a, a revelation for me was the the thing that fascinated me was the idea of the failed stand-up the failed performer because Jake LaMotta tries to do mm. stand-up and this is something that happens in some of his other films there's a little bit of that in Casino there's a little bit mm. of, of that in um, I forget there was another one uh, Last Temptation of... Cro- no. Um, <laughs> uh, but, no, there is there is that thing of the, the sad comic, the sad clown, mm. uh, which, which I found so fascinating in King of Comedy. Rowan Spong, filmmaker.
20: I think one of Scorsese's more underappreciated films would be The King of Comedy from 1983, uh, and it's a film that I very much enjoy. This film has some really unusual tonal shifts in it. And I think this is due to the fact that Scorsese has cast two actors playing very much against type. So Jerry Lewis plays Jerry Longford, a beloved television host and stand-up comedian, but we only really see him off-camera, and he's quite cynical and dour and not enjoying being famous at all. Uh, and Robert De Niro plays uh, Rupert Popkin. It's It's a darkly funny role, unlike perhaps the other roles that he plays in Scorsese's films. Uh, And he plays a delusional, untalented stand-up comedian who's desperate to be a celebrity. I think one of the exciting aspects of watching The King of Comedy is the way that Scorsese blurs what we know to be the real world that the characters inhabit and the fantasies or delusions that De Niro's character has about himself. So at times this is made really, really clear, but... Often there are scenes which go for several minutes and much time passes before the audience can be sure one way or another what we're watching is in De Niro's head or is actually happening in the context of the narrative. And I think that Scorsese does a really great job of playing with the audience's expectations and that's one of the interesting tensions in the film. Probably my favourite set piece of the film occurs in the third act. So Rupert and Masha, who is played by Sandra Bernhard, kidnap Jerry in the hope that Rupert might get his big break on Jerry's television show. And there's some really side-splittingly funny moments here. There's a moment where Masha insists that Jerry try on a lurid red sweater that she has painstakingly knitted for him as an obsessed fan. Uh, And then Jerry is forced to make a hostage phone call to a network executive and has to read from Rupert's cue cards, which are poorly organized, upside down, back to front. And he even gets to note over the phone that they're grammatically incorrect.
21: It's not grammatically correct, but I think you have the idea.
20: I love the tonal shifts in Scorsese's The King of Comedy. I love that it has a really ambiguous ending, and I wish it's a film that more people had seen or knew about.
0: Chris Taylor, writer and performer.
20: On the surface, The King
22: of Comedy seems something of an outlier for Martin Scorsese. Uh, it was a technicolour comedy, or a black comedy at least, coming off the back of films like Taxi Driver, Mean Streets and Raging Bull, which were very gritty, very, uh, very dramatic. And on the surface, The King of Comedy, almost by virtue of one of the words in its title, felt like light affair. Um, for Scorsese. But the reality was that it, it actually shares quite a lot in common with those earlier films. Um, uh, Rupert Pumpkin, played by De Niro, in many ways is a natural successor to someone like Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. He, like Bickle, he is a sociopath who is driven to commit a, a criminal act in pursuit of what he believes is a more noble cause. Um, in many ways, you could say that. Pupkin is sort of one of the darkest, most troubling of all of Scorsese's protagonists, precisely because he's not so overtly criminal on the surface, if you know what I mean. Like, he feels like just this bumbling fool, like he's an autograph hunter, he's a fan of comedy, who wants to be famous. He, You know, he's, he's not in the mafia, he's not a mobster, he doesn't hang around people who kill for a living. But... Because De Niro plays it with such a light touch, there is something that's sort of more affecting and more troubling about it. And, I mean, the the film has a a sort of really interesting history in in the the overall context of Scorsese's career because it was the first film he made after Raging Bull. And it's it's said that Scorsese sort of wanted to quit feature filmmaking after Raging Bull and, and devote himself to docos. And it was De Niro who'd sort of had the script for King of Comedy for quite a while, who really had to persuade Scorsese to make it. And interestingly, sort of years later at, uh, at film festivals, Scorsese's described it as being his most favourite collaboration he did with De Niro ever. Um, and he sort of credits this film with reigniting his enthusiasm for movie-making and how to learn, he he believes he learned how to make movies again on King of Comedy, having become so entrenched in formalism on films like Mean Streets and Raging Bull. Now, uh, interestingly, the film was a complete flop uh, on release. Uh, No one wanted to see it. I suspect possibly... Because of uh, sort of a miscategorization in its marketing, I mean, I think people thought it was going to be funny. Um, yeah, as I said, it's called the King of Comedy, and I think they were expecting this sort of light, breezy film. Um, but it's not. It's 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 menacingly dark. It's it's really sober, sort of dissection of of stalkers. Really, um, interestingly, De Niro apparently classic method actor, spent a lot of time meeting his own stalkers. He actually sought out his own autograph hunters and a stalker that he'd had and he had dinner with them. He wanted to get inside their minds. And, and it's a really sort of quite ahead-of-its-time depiction of that mindset. Uh, and I guess the public in 1982 wasn't ready for that. This was the year, I think, that that E.T. came out and the King of Comedy couldn't be further removed from a popcorn-friendly movie like E.T., but, it, but as a satire of fame and a satire about the hunger for fame, it's a really remarkable piece of work and one of my favourite Scorsese films because what it shows us is that it, it kind of demonstrates that it's the triumph of mediocrity. When you finally see Pupkin do his, his monologue on The Tonight Show, he's actually not bad. Like, you know, he's not great, but he, he gets laughs. He does a perfectly serviceable stand-up routine, and that's what the film actually satirises, I think, is the rise of the mediocre uh, person, which of course today we see everywhere <laughs> in our politics, in our, in our uh, you know reality TV, in our social media, and what I think the Kim comedy did really well was to show you don't need to be that good to break through and have a taste of fame and a taste of celebrity in the world, and uh, yeah, that's why uh, the film really speaks to me. I think it's amazing.
0: Simon Murado, critic and editor.
23: I did want to say a few words about my favourite of his films, The King of Comedy. But I do appreciate that it's not really cool or interesting to say that it's my favourite Scorsese film anymore. It's a great film, rightly regarded as such by most people these days. So I'm sure plenty of others are going to rave about it and its Robert De Niro lead performance. Hopefully, though, they'll also rave about what I wanted to mention, which is the performance by Sandra Bernhardt. This is one of my favorite things in the entire Scorsese oeuvre. Uh, It's her performance as Masha, who is the even more unhinged friend or rival of Rupert Pupkin. God, I I trip over that name every time. Rupert Pupkin in the movie. She she helps him kidnap and tie up Jerry Langford and subjects him to this terrifying, hilarious monologue uh, that really does trump anything conveyed by Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, uh, certainly anything by Jack Nicholson in The Departed, and, and truthfully, Robert De Niro in, like, anything.
12: And I just have, like, these
24: daydreams, like, you know, that I'm out, I'm out with you at the golf course, driving your cart, just driving around. Need a putter, chair, You know? <laughs> Need an iron? I don't even know how to play golf. I played with my parents once, my dad, but I love you.
23: And it really is a shame that in the 40 years since Alice doesn't live here anymore, Marty hasn't super prioritised female leads, uh, even though there have of course been great female performances in many of his movies. But we shouldn't ever forget Sandra Bernhard, that up-and-coming comic in her 20s who stole the King of Comedy out from under a literal living legend at the time, and a legend in Rising with Robert De Niro. And look, let's just, let's just put them back together again soon, please.
2: Yeah, low-kick. King of Comedy has always felt like the best-kept secret in Scorsese's career to me. Mm. It's in my top five Scorsese's. Really? It's maybe in my top 50 or so movies' favourites. Uh, all of the five are. I adore this movie. and It's
1: so painful to watch, I love though. it. But
2: has a movie aged... Has any of these films aged better into itself, though? Because cringe comedy is so much part of the landscape now, and... Mm people craving fame has never been at its most and this film like feels like more apt now than it was in 1982 Mm. the way de niro plays it as first look at getting de niro playing funny yeah as painfully as that is
0: i mean him yelling at his mother <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> mom I'm it's and like, that's years before the cliche of the kid yes. in the basement yelling at his mother while he's trying to be serious on the internet. you know and as simon said sandra bernhardt is next
2: level incredible in this yeah. movie it's funny that you commented to me in private a little while ago that why are they making a Joker origin story when we have this movie? I'm like,
0: I'm marginally embarrassed that I was so reductive about King of Cody, but I did. Yeah, I texted Paul afterwards and said, because um, uh, you know, I, I know you're a big comic fan, and said, yeah, this is this is a Joker origin film, and it was this was about three days before the trailer for the Joker yeah. film came out, and it, which features De Niro as, a, as as the host of a late night show. I was like, why did they bother? This is the Joker origin film. This is the and, perfected it.
2: And you've got Harley Quinn with, with Sandra <laughs> exactly. Bernard's character. You know, it's like, this is insane. It's, but it's such a, I, I feel like this film says so much about our culture and, the, and where it was going and where we are and where we find ourselves today. Um... And
0: Jerry Lewis is incredible. I mean, you can't talk mm. about this film without mm. talking about that yeah. performance. Unbelievable. So yeah. like, the closest we've got, I think, to the real Jerry Lewis. I think like so film. too. Mm. Yeah.
2: Like, like you feel for him on on one hand because the poor bastard cops this stuff every day and has to put up with all of these people. Yeah. But there's a real dark, mean side there too yeah. that I think a lot of people said Jerry had, and in this film really
0: is given full vent.
1: And he does it with hardly any words. Yeah. I and mean, there's really not a lot of dialogue for Jerry Lewis here, and yet he just says it with his face.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially in that scene where he's, which we just oh, heard from, God. where he's tied up, <laughs> we just heard a clip from. He's just silent, basically, for the whole thing. You can just see it all in his eyes. Seething. Do you notice that
2: this film lacks the visual flourishes that we kind of know of Marty? Mm. It's very straightforwardly shot. It's very on location. It's very, But there's not a lot of sweeping pans and things like that that stuff really I mean Raging Bull there's moments of it but this kind of exuberance that we associate with Marty's filmmaking really didn't
0: start until his next film yeah and that's and I I, I, this would have been my pick for the hidden gem of his filmography because it's one that people don't talk about that much the incredible Mm. film from 1985 After Hours Scott Weinberg critic and film producer
21: when it comes to accomplished filmmakers who have a large body of work everybody needs their own entry point uh you know um i was fortunate enough to see the early films of spielberg and then i just kind of followed his career throughout my childhood and adult life um but when it comes to scorsese he had already accomplished uh, a lot before i was um you know adult enough to appreciate it for example after hours was my entry point i had seen parts of raging bull and king of comedy uh and i had i knew of course about mean streets but didn't know much more and this was well this was a few years before goodfellas would explode and make everybody want to dig back through his back catalog which i did several years later but after hours was my first real uh i discovered this really cool movie and it's by, it happens to be by this filmmaker that everyone else loves So that in and of itself gave me a little, I felt, you know, oh, I get it. I get this great filmmaker, at least in one movie, I get it. And I think the reason I love After Hours is because it's so uh, weird. It's dark, but not too dark. And it often plays like a a dark live-action cartoon in that, you know, how much more absurd and insane can this poor guy's night get? And the film, of course, is about uh, a guy who goes into uh, New York City. He goes downtown into Soho, I believe it is, to uh, meet with a mysterious woman. He is Griffin Dunn. Uh, She is Rosanna Arquette. And um, let's just say this is not a date that's going to go well. And things go from bad date to disaster to illegal activity to near riot. Uh, And it's it's just a crazy balance uh, between ensemble comedy and you know uh, dark satire, I guess about living in the city and uh, you know the the fears of going into a different neighborhood, even though it might only be seven miles from your safety of your own neighborhood. I love the cast. I love Catherine O'Hara, John Hurd, Cheech and Chong. It's got lots of good people in it. I don't want to spoil all of them because they'll keep popping up. So yeah, I, I love After Hours. I don't think it's uh, you know as uh celebrated as some of scorsese's best films but you know uh, every great filmmaker needs some of those you know m- middle tier loved movies and i have yet to meet a film fan who has seen after hours and not like it so you know take that for what it's worth if you if all you know of scorsese is his great crime stories that's cool because man is he good at that but Check out After Hours when you get a free minute because it's fantastic. And the King of Comedy as well. And when you're done with that, tune in to 80s all over, because that's my plug. Thanks.
2: After hours is, yeah, as you say, it's the other hidden gem. Mm. I I saw this when I was younger and, and when I was, you know, going through my first Scorsese phase and felt like, yeah, this is this is a lot of fun. This is a fun little movie, and it's very pumped up and it's very punk, it's a little punk rock record. I
0: watched it again the other day. I don't know if I like getting older, I find this little more <laughs> relatable. <laughs> it's it's little. Uh... It's the universe conspiring against yes a person, and and I don't think I've seen that in a Scorsese. I've seen that in other filmmakers have done that, but I've never seen Scorsese say the universe is out to get you. It's not your choices that yeah. are doing this to
2: you. Because every choice Paul makes, like, you can debate with some and and kind of go, you idiot, get out of there, go to here. But they're all made out of some form of compassion or some form of trying to right a wrong or some form of apology or, like, and he just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And Scorsese sees this as a kind of a Dante style, you know, into somebody falling into the underworld kind of tale. Mm. like when she, when Linda Fiorentino's character throws the keys down, you know, it has this kind of big shot following the keys down because once he gets those, that, for Scorsese, is the moment when he descends and he's he's all the way in it. There is an energy to this film. I mean, Schoonmaker's um, editing is ridiculous yeah. in this film. Like, certain cuts and, and it's got all those quick Scorsese whip pans. Like, the opening shot, the opening dolly shot into um, Griffin Dunn is literally... I mean, how many times has PTA used that in yeah, his yeah. early films? Like, it's so straight out of boogie. And, and that's the thing. There's something, like, you, like. Paul is kind of slightly douchey, but he's well-meaning and kind of, he just wants to, you know, break out of his humdrum life one night, have a nice little adventure, meet a nice girl, and then the universe sets out to fuck him over and, <laughs> over, and over and over again. And it's both, like, again, like, King of Comedy, is both cringeworthy and hilarious. And again, Bruce Sound Good School says he as a comedy. I'm surprised he hasn't made more comedies. Mm. But I, I just I, I yeah, this is a film that was one of the rediscoveries of doing this podcast. I, I love it in a whole new way, and now it's knocking on
0: the door. It's not quite in my top five, but it's so close. Guy Davis, journalist and critic.
4: If there's a set of commandments for the 21st century, foremost among them would have to be, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Having said that, a few years back, a film writer in the US wrote that he'd met Martin Scorsese and said to him, if church made me feel the way Last Temptation of Christ makes me feel, I'd attend every Sunday. Now, like I said, grain of salt, but you can't deny the honesty at the heart of that statement. This is a time when organized religion is in a state of flux at best, a state of crisis at worst. And Scorsese and screenwriter Paul Schrader's 1988 adaptation of Nikos Kazantzakis's fictional exploration of the eternal spiritual conflict, that's the author's words, uh, to me illuminates and clarifies the best and most pure qualities of Christianity of a life of faith and belief. And it does so by taking the story of Jesus Christ from the traditionally lofty heights and bringing it down in true Scorsese tradition to street level. It's the mean streets of Galilee, but you get the point. There's a humanity to Last Temptation that makes it more compelling and, dare I say, more genuine than many stories of Christianity. Uh, Characters act rashly, irrationally, selfishly, even violently, none more so than Jesus himself. But an understanding of and a longing for the pleasures and joys of a human life course through this story, and they make Jesus' sacrifice his ultimate willingness to surrender those pleasures and joys for all of us, all the greater. I've watched uh, The Last Temptation of Christ at least once a year for the last 30 years. Um, I'm pretty sure I will do so for the rest of my life.
0: Kriv Stenders, filmmaker.
3: My favourite shot, my favourite moment would have to be the ending of The Last Temptation of Christ. I remember the feeling I had when I first saw that film and when that ending came, I was absolutely winded. It was such a beautiful culmination of that story and just the genius, the idea of having the film stock run out as Christ died on the cross just literally blew my mind. I thought that was such a fantastic, genius idea and the emotion that overwhelmed me, even though I'm not Christian or, or, or believe in God or anything, it just it really affected me and I knew then, I already knew already that Scorsese was a great filmmaker but I realised he was one of the greats at that point. Drew McQueen, critic and screenwriter.
25: I was taking a trip up to see a College before I actually went to go to college and uh, the campus that I toured, Florida State University, is where I ended up going. Uh, this would have been, I guess seven months, eight months, maybe before Last Temptation of Christ came out. And I was already working as a theater manager at that time. I'd worked my way up through high school, and uh, as I was getting ready to go to college, I was a manager. And one of my duties had become um, focused entirely on Last Temptation of Christ. I was told by my general manager, uh, we're not booking the film, or at least we don't think we are, but we're going to be getting calls about it from now until the time the movie comes out, Anytime we get one of those calls, you can take the call and you have carte blanche to say whatever you want and get these crazy people to stop calling us back. Uh, He let me off the leash. And so I would argue with these people. And I got more and more incensed at the attitude that they were trying to um, silence a movie that hadn't been made yet... And that they didn't know the Nikos Cousinsakis novel. They didn't know what the approach was. They didn't understand that Paul Schrader was a Calvinist who had very strong religious backgrounds and, and had certainly had his own thoughts about Christ before he ever read the book or started talking about Scorsese or that Scorsese was a Catholic who had his own very personal relationship with Christ. So the idea that these fundamentalists were using it as a fundraising thing and as something to attack and that they were... Uh, putting out false information about the contents of the movie was driving me crazy. And so I went up to Florida State and I was touring the campus and I'd already gone through months of phone calls about this thing. And uh, we're walking uh, across the middle of the, the campus, the quad, and somebody's holding, uh, somebody's handing out these flyers about Last Temptation of Christ, and why you should boycott it, why you should boycott any movie theater that shows it, and why Universal Studios is run by Jews, and it's terrible. And um, I snapped. I lost my mind. And I ended up standing nose-to-nose with this person, smacking the flyers out of their hands, and then laying into them this long diatribe about the novel and about Scorsese's attempts to get it made, and about... what it meant and about why it was really wrestling with the nature of the divine and the human, I I lost my mind. And I realized that I had gotten as caught up in it as they had, and that this there was something about the dynamic of that film being made that drove people a little crazy. What's really sad about that is that of all the films that I've seen in my life, as somebody who was raised Catholic and who uh, had their own Journey through trying to figure out what their their sense of faith was. I've never seen another movie that dealt with the idea of being both human and divine in the same way as Last Temptation of Christ. And I've never seen one that made the sacrifices moving or as understandable as a choice as that film. Of all the movies I've ever seen, the one that is not about a guy with a light bulb behind his head who is perfect and squeaky clean and right out of central casting, that's the one that spoke to me and I think these people who protested, the saddest thing about that is that I feel many of them would have had a valuable experience with it because it humanizes the idea of Christ in a way that no overly reverential portrait ever could it's ironic that one of the most violently Uh, protested movies about religion ever is also one of the most
0: heartfelt, I think. Jeremy Smith, critic and author.
26: I was born in 1973 and I can't begin to assess Martin Scorsese's career without marveling over his post-Raging Bull 1980s run of King of Comedy, After Hours, and The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, I'm leaving out The Color of Money because even at a young age, I could tell that his late-breaking sequel to The Hustler was, quote, one for them, end quote. Uh, Yes, the pool hall crane work is sensational, but Scorsese was very much a director for hire on that film. As for the other movies, uh, if you had a directorial death wish during the style over substance 1980s, these are the movies you'd make. Two brutally pitch black comedies and a wildly controversial religious drama in which Jesus Christ makes it with Mary Magdalene. Uh, We revere these films now. But they bombed at the box office. Uh, Scorsese never disowned them, but he wasn't eager to discuss them either. Uh, Nine years later, uh, after the release of uh, Last Temptation, I saw Scorsese in conversation with Roger Ebert. When they hit the 1980s, Scorsese kind of slumped in his seat. Uh, Then there were cheers. First for King of Comedy. They grew louder with after-hours, and then the audience roared at the mention of Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, Scorsese clearly moved, uh, lifted his microphone from his lap, and um, once the applause died down, said, Thank you. That was a rough decade for me. (laughs) We should all struggle so brilliantly.
1: Yeah, a lot of people do say that The Colour of Money is his worst film, but I think you're a fan, Paul.
26: Yeah, I
2: am. I think it's great. We watched it again the other night, and I think the first time I saw it, I saw it right off The Hustler, which is yeah. the, the predecessor, and, okay, The Hustler's a better film, and it did sort of suffer a little bit by that comparison, but watching it in the context of Scorsese's films... I think it was genuinely great. I think, and if God, I mean, if every director made one for them like mm. that, yeah. mm. there is so much of him in it. It's written by Richard Price, who was one of my favorite screenwriters from around that time. It gives Newman so much to chew on. It's a rare Tom Cruise film where you're not, Tom Cruise isn't the character you're railing behind. Like, yeah. he's a jerk.
0: Um,
2: Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio is fantastic.
0: It's not the obvious film you'd make not, if you're making a sequel. It's it's a really and I think that's what makes it so interesting. It's a, it's a great character study, and uh, and, I, and I'm actually it's the it's the Tom Cruise sequel I want the most. I want him to be mentoring I don't know Michael B Jordan or someone. Yeah. You know I, I want to yeah. see them continue this torch. Because I think if you you're making a
2: big money making sequel, it's like it's not like it's you know the sequel to bloody. Uh, The Exorcist or you know it's like it's the sequel to The Hustler which was 27 years earlier and you know it's not again in no way is this the obvious choice in no way is this a money grabbing thing it's just he had the juice to be able to bring in you know a a Newman and a Cruise um, or maybe they initiated the project themselves because they were friends at the time and again using that style that he brought from After Hours to this and the pool games Mm. and the whip pans and that beautiful but again it's all emotionally driven and it sort of goes from this beautiful character study about somebody realizing they don't have to hustle anymore. Like it's it's time for them to be. It's time for Eddie Felson to be true to himself. So mm-hmm. I'm like, well, who are you? Are you a hustler? Do you want to be this hustler all your life, who is you know this person trying to you know milk people out of their cash, or are you going to sack up and actually be
0: the pool player that you hoped you would be? Mm. And that's and that switch is just beautiful. It is, and it's, yeah, I, th- I think it is a really good film, but of course, yeah, in there, Last Temptation, just to jump back to that, yeah, is just incredible, and I, I really liked the first time I saw it, but watching it this time, really, I really appreciated what he was doing. I can see why it got protested so much, because there is a very, same with Life of Brian, a very surface level idea that a lot of super religious people who don't quite understand the point of their own religion, which, and I think this is particularly true mm-hmm. of Judaism and Catholicism more than a lot of other religions, but the idea of questioning and struggling with the faith, it's not blasphemous, it's the point. Mm. And seeing Jesus do it is so, you know, this is... It's just such an interesting film and really made me angry at, at Passion of the Christ, which I've always sort of... I've had a love-hate relationship with, you know, I love it on an aesthetic level and hate a lot of what it thinks it's saying about Jesus mm. and what it doesn't know it's saying about about, about Christianity and Judaism and everything. This is one of the best religious films ever made, and I, th- I think one of the best films about faith. And that's everywhere. the
2: thing, it's not pompous. Like, it's mm. make, it's about character. It's about making it real and relatable. And even to the point, what do you think of his choice of, like, casting his u- usual kind of
0: New York gang, um, of, you know, New York
2: Murderer's Row to play the Apostles?
0: Well, that's making it relatable. Like, yeah. it's, that's absolutely the thing of, like, if, to him, religion is an, uh, is an everyday thing. It's a lived thing, and he lived that in New York. And it makes total sense that you would see these guys that, you know, Harvey Keitel is Judas. You know, that, yes. that totally scans <laughs> to me.
1: Like, uh, Jesus, he was way cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, he <Let me, laughs> was
0: fucking alright. He's a stand-up guy. You know, hey. Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> the water's in the wine. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. So, okay. Totally different tack. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about Scorsese, an actor. You mentioned him in Taxi Driver. I did. Scorsese... Loves casting himself. And I love how much he loves casting himself. He gets so much joy out of it. Um, But he also turns up in other people's uh, films. He's in Quiz Show, Guilty Advice. Great in Quiz Show. Um, I guess Shark Tale. That's the last time we'll mention that. Um, But he's... The thing is, he's a really good actor. Like, really good. Rhys Muldoon, actor and writer.
27: One of my favourite memories is of Martin Scorsese as an actor, not as a director. I'm not talking about uh, Martin Scorsese's, uh, I suppose you'd call it a cameo in Taxi Driver. I'm talking about his role in a film called Round Midnight, a film about Dexter Gordon, a um, very gifted black saxophonist uh, who goes to Paris in the 50s. At one point he comes back to New York, and uh, I'm not sure how they shot it, but um, it's just in a hotel room. But you know it's New York because Martin Scorsese is in that hotel room playing um, a hustler, essentially. And uh, Scorsese's um, dialogue is so rapid and so New York, um, he is kind of the embodiment of New York in that scene. Um, they They literally could have shot it anywhere, but if you have Martin Scorsese on a bed just talking fast, you are in New York City.
14: I know you probably wouldn't want to go uptown, but if you want, if you want, there's the Armenian joint on 8th Avenue, two blocks down, if you want to eat. You can, I mean, you could also eat at the club. You can also eat at the club. But if you want to go there, I know you're going to probably wind up at the Market Diner wherever you guys want to go, but if you go to the Armenian joint on 8th Avenue, you come to the club, you sign for it, I put it on your tab. Okay, the same thing goes for the stock cleaners and laundry on 7th Avenue. You want anything clean, laundered, pressed, whatever you guys want, sign for it, I put it on your tab, all right?
27: And uh, that's um, that's a favourite moment for me.
0: It's also worth mentioning that this definitely run in the family Because as far back as I can remember, Marty loved casting his mother, Catherine Scorsese. Richard Gray, film critic and writer.
28: When I first started watching Marty's films in some weird chronological order, like the pedantic geek that I am, one of the things that I really loved was seeing the way that he incorporated his mother, Catherine. It's from. It's not just you, Mari, in 1964 all the way through to Casino in the mid-90s. She was kind of like a Hitchcockian cameo that taught us how to make sauce or just being Joe Pesci's mum in Goodfellas. She also had a cameo in The Muppets Take Manhattan. What is cooler than that, I ask you? As this scene from Italian-American that I want to play proves, she never backed down from schooling Marty about what to do with his own films.
12: Yeah, you mentioned my name, yeah. You want, what should I say? You want me to, know, you want me to tell you how I, I, the, how, how I learned
27: how,
12: did how to make... Why don't you ask me the question? Don't you hear
28: that then? No. She's just so naturalistic. She's basically the same character in every film. She's gone now. She left us in 1997, but is undoubtedly doing cameos
29: somewhere in the multiverse with Stan Lee.
28: Abe Forsyth,
0: actor and filmmaker.
29: So my all-time favourite scene out of a Martin Scorsese film, and there are so many films of his that I deeply love... Um, and scenes within those films too even in the films of his that I don't love, they're still filled with scenes and sequences that are incredible but my favourite scene is in Goodfellas after Billy Batts has just had the has just been murdered and had the the crap beaten out of him and the sound and and the, the, the violence in that scene is so full on, it's one of the most graphic in the movie and then Joe Pesci saying we'll get a shovel from my mother's house and then you've got this scene cut to them arriving at the mother's house and hasn't seen a son in a long time, so happy to see him and you know, trying to get them to go and have something to eat, make themselves comfortable and, and, you know, got this sort of bickering between her and Robert De Niro and I haven't seen him in so long, I want to see him just go inside and then jump cut to a table full of food and these three men after murdering someone sitting around with their coats off now enjoying this huge meal. And then Joe Pesci pulling the knife out, that, that the massive like, knife, and then asking if he can borrow it, saying that they hit a deer. They hit him and his, uh,
13: we hit the deer and his paw, what do you call it? The paw. The, the paw, paw. The, the, the hoof. hoof. The hoof got caught in the grill, oh. I, gotta, I gotta hack
29: it off. Which for me seems like a great little moment of impro. it may or may not be impro, but it also reminds me of Wolf of Wall Street. There's a, there's There's a number of sequences in Wolf of Wall Street where it just feels like actors riffing off each other. Jonah Hill, there's a scene with him and talking about throwing the dwarves and things and it seems like there's like an eight-minute scene in that one which is just actors riffing, which for me, this is a scene which is, there's little colour in there, which may or may not be impro, but it's all really just, it's succinct and it's sharp and it's funny and it it really earns its place. And then the lovely joke that the mother tells as well too, which makes them all laugh, but I also particularly like the way Ray Liotta listens to everything in this scene as well too and there's a couple of really effective shots of him just dealing with the weight of everything that 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 his his character's been going through and what they've just done which i think speaks to how incredible he is in this movie as well too but the best line for me at any moment in in all of scorsese's films is when she pulls out the painting and shows everyone the painting and just pulls up this painting out of nowhere and it's the two the fisherman and the and the two dogs but the line that i love from joe pesci which is
30: i like this one the dog one dog goes one way and the other dog goes the other
29: way and then them recognizing billy bats as maybe the fisherman in the painting that the mother's done as well too and the way they all laugh and again this amazing tracking shot at the end which goes from joe pesci's laughter to to the trunk of the car where his body is waiting to be cut up and and buried but, and I guess you know the lovely thing that just ties this scene together in so many ways for me and, and Scorsese too obviously is that it's his own mother in the scene and how brilliant she is in the scene I don't know it just sums up everything for me with the violence, the humanity, the comedy, everything that he does so well is encapsulated in this scene and where the scene comes from and then where it goes to afterwards where they're, where they're disposing of the body. Yeah, he's never done anything as good, in my opinion. And he's done a lot of great things.
0: And yeah, on that scene with Scorsese's mother in Goodfellas, it's worth mentioning that the biggest surprise I had putting this together, a lot of people were really into the idea of Marty's obsession with food. Food plays a big part in his films. And there's one scene in particular that everyone seemed to focus on. John Hewitt, Filmmaker.
31: Scorsese's the shit He's an awesome filmmaker I like all his movies Docco shorts Pretty much everything He's ever done But the only Film of his That I really love A film I can watch Time and time again Go back to When I'm feeling low When I need to kill Some time I think about it a lot Is Goodfellas And it's because Of the food Scorsese loves food And booze like Tarkovsky Loves Water. It's this resonant symbol that runs through all his work. But his celebration of it reaches its nadir in Goodfellas. That movie is just dripping with nosh. We can all remember the great scene where Paulie, the mafia boss, is slicing up the garlic in prison in that studio apartment hotel room they got going on with the lobsters being delivered and so on I mean that's a classic scene but right from the get-go there's food everywhere like when we first meet the gangsters uh, at that sort of barbecue cook-up they got going with those curls of Italian sausage and peppers cooking on the barbecue we're introduced to the New York mafia and that scene ends with a slow tracking shot into Paulie's face the gang boss while he's sort of slowly eating an Italian sausage sandwich and we're hearing Henry Hill give us the reason why the Mafia even exists. A very significant moment, and all through that speech of Ray Liotta's as Henry telling us why the Mafia exists is this slow track towards Paulie, the Mafia boss, chowing down on a sandwich. So, I mean, it's a great scene, but it also subtextually means more than it actually is because of that food. When young Henry Hill first meets Jimmy Conway, the significant character played by Robert De Niro, that whole scene starts with young Henry making a bologna and provolone sandwich. That's the establishing frame and then the camera sort of pans and tracks eventually towards a door where Jimmy Conway steps into the room in close-up and we're introduced to that character. Food is very much a part of that scene, and it goes on and on and on throughout the movie. I've never been so hungry coming out of a film than coming out of Goodfellas. Every time you watch Goodfellas, you just want to chow down on some Italian sausage and some pasta and drink a bit of red wine. So Goodfellas is an incredible film, but for me, it's all about the food. I was uh, thrilled uh, a few years after watching the film when I was reading Anthony Bourdain's uh, classic, kitchen confidential where he absolutely and unequivocally says that the only way to treat garlic is the way that poorly treated it in the prison scene where you slice it thinly so that it melts in the oil debates have raged over the internet and from various chefs about using garlic in that way but for me Bourdain is another significant figure, and in, in his culture, the culture of cooking and writing, like Scorsese is for filmmaking, he confirmed that that's the way you treat garlic in that book that pretty much kick-started the chef as rock star phenomenon that took over the known universe. I love Goodfellas. It's one of my all-time favourite films, and it's all because of the food. Scorsese's the shit. Chris Taylor.
22: Goodfellas, for me, is... One of those movies that's probably full of more memorable scenes and and more quotable scenes than just about any other film ever made. Certainly, any other film Scorsese's made. It's just packed with great imagery and and extraordinary filmmaking. But the scene, I. I'm particularly going to pinpoint that I can never go past is the scene of the slicing of the garlic inside prison it's not a big detail in the film but the fact that it's there at all just speaks to the level of detail in Goodfellas and even today I I can't ever chop a garlic clove without trying the Goodfellas method which is getting a razor blade and trying to shave it as finely and thinly as possible. And I think the quote in the script is that if you do it thin enough, it will liquefy once you put it into the oil in the pan. And I'm here to tell you that doesn't actually work. (laughs) Unless I've got my oil too hot, it just tends to go quite brown very quickly. But it's it's just... As I said, I can't slice garlic without thinking of Goodfellas, and it's the tribute to a great movie maker that can make even such a sort of peripheral detail like that stick in the mind.
0: Um, It's amazing. Mark Fennell, TV presenter and radio host.
32: The scene I want to pick is not even a scene, it's a shot. So in Goodfellas, when you've got all of the mobsters crowded around their cell, there's this cutaway, this extremely close-up cutaway of a piece of garlic being sliced... With a razor. To me, that is the shot that sums up Martin Scorsese because not only is it precision filmmaking, it's also precision filmmaking that gives away a sense of place, a sense of time, a sense of character. It tells you about those men, what matters to them, what they value in life. But it's more than that, in a way, because in that shot, you also get a sense of two things that I think are really important to Martin Scorsese nostalgia and culture. His family history, the the Catholic Italian background, it's such a defining part of who he is and the way he makes films and and the sorts of stories he chooses to tell about the relationships between family and loyalty. All of that folds in to his culture and also nostalgia. You know, you, you get the sense that not just through this film but a lot of Martin Scorsese's films, he's processing stuff that he became aware of when he was a younger man. Every time I see this shot, this tiny slice of garlic being very methodically sort of pared away, I think it, it holds within it so much of the, the iconography and the care and the detail that makes Martin Scorsese unique. Zach Hepburn, film critic and theatre manager.
33: Food and Scorsese have always been interconnected inside his cinema. But for me, one of the seminal moments of his film career regarding food is not all the Italian cooking you'd expect to see in Goodfellas or other films of that ilk. It's a small moment in the criminally underappreciated casino where Sam A. Throstein is sitting in a bar contemplating the inevitable and he's having a conversation over a blueberry muffin and his muffin has substantially less blueberries in it than his friend. And there's a moment of sheer panic and then goes to a aggressive resolution.
34: They're all looking to rob me blind 24 hours a day. I have to let them know I'm watching all the details all the time, that there is not one single thing I will not catch as I am over here. Look at yours. but Look at that. Look at at this, there's nothing. Look how many blueberries your muffin has and how many mine has. Yours is falling apart, I have nothing. What are you talking about? It's like everything else in this place. You don't do it yourself, it never gets done. Where are you going?
20: How long can this go home?
34: From now on, I want you to put an equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. You know how long that's going to take? I don't care how long it takes. Put an equal amount in each muffin.
33: And for me, that sort of anxiety about having less blueberries in your muffin is emblematic of the anxiety, fractious nervousness that's involved in all of Scorsese's films, and that small moment just over a muffin I think is a quintessential Martin Scorsese moment so thank you Marty because every time I sit down to a muffin now I contemplate just what I'm missing out on in life so thank you
0: and yeah we'll we'll come back to casino in a second yeah um but yeah we have we have to mention good we have to
2: and that's the thing I mean look So much has been said by our wonderful uh, array of guests there. Now, I don't know what my gateway to Scorsese was, because it was around this time. Because his next film is the first one I saw in cinemas, but I don't know whether I saw Goodfellas on video beforehand. Mm. But one of these two was my gateway. And... Goodfellas is a film that really grew on me. Like I, I, I remember something I was hearing about, and it's funny because when I started getting like 89, 90 was when my film buffery kind of began, and I started reading things like Premiere magazine, and he was already being described as America's greatest living director
6: hmm.
2: in nineteen ninety. So it's funny, like reflecting now on these eighties, you know, so called failures and how tough it was, but the industry was already looking at him as somebody who was at the top of their game. And Goodfellas was described as that. It was nominated as a bunch of, uh, for a bunch of awards, and and you know, there's iconic performances by Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta, and again Lorraine Bracco. You know, mm. this and The Sopranos, best things she's ever done. And it's it's again, it, it's all of the stuff that had been brewing throughout the eighties come to bear here, and just every filmmaking trick in the book. Well, almost everyone. By the time we get to another film in a few mm. years, that really raises everything through the roof. But Goodfellas and a couple of other films that are coming up are often described as being kind of oh they're just glorifying gangsters they're glorifying criminals they're glorifying but I disagree because I think people that miss the point take that from it's like people who watch Scarface and want to be Tony Montana mm. I mean, that's crazy to people me.
0: watch Fight Club start Fight clubs. exactly yeah.
2: it's ridiculous Goodfellas is a film that shows what draws people into criminal enterprises. Look, it's great. You glide through the coper and get the front seat and you take anybody you want, slap anybody around and get every, you know, and and we're, we're kings of the earth. And then he pulls the pin out and he's like, and this is what you're really doing. Mm-hmm. And this is the cost of everything. And this is what happens. And it's corrosive and you'll end up dead and you know, everybody's paranoid. and And it's... I think it's the perfect way. It's it's what train spotting does for drugs. Yeah, it's, for heroin, it's the same thing. It's like the first half is look how amazing it feels to be on heroin, and the second half is like look how much heroin is going to fuck
0: your life. And in all honesty, the Qualude scene in Wolf of Wall Street, where he's like, I can't believe I didn't hit anything, and then you see he did hit everything. He wrecked his car. He ran it's- into people. It's like yeah, it's it's that. Showing the consequences.
2: Exactly. And yeah, I just, um, Goodfellas is another perfect film as far as I'm concerned. It's just, it's a delight from beginning to end. And again, I can't add too much more to what everybody's been saying because it's just phenomenal.
35: Blake Howard, film critic. I couldn't speak about a whole film um, because, you know, masterpieces for me are a. you know you can almost speak an hour on every single minute of the film which would mean that for a stack of Scorsese films I'm going to be speaking for 150 hours a piece and you guys don't have that much time so I'm just going to speak about one of my favorite close-ups in Martin Scorsese's masterpiece from 1990 Goodfellas. One of the greatest gangster films of all time literally became a movie that you could have the conversation: "Is this in the conversation with Godfather is the greatest gangster film of all time?" And not just be laughed out of a room. Uh, the particular scene that I'm talking about is one of the rare moments in this incredible adaptation of Nicholas Pileggi's book, um, and you know he co- you know wrote the screenplay. It's one of the rare moments that Martin Scorsese relinquishes this myopic view of. Henry Hill, played by Ray Liotta, um, and, you know, there is one other notable one uh, in the movie um, that is a sort of uh, a holiday, a little brief departure where we get out of Henry's perspective and we jump in the perspective of Karen, played by Lorraine Bracco.
36: I couldn't stand him. I thought he was really obnoxious. He kept fidgeting around.
35: But this moment is about 20 seconds, and it's set in sort of a dive bar, And at the beginning of the minute, this 103rd minute, a character named Morris Kessler, played by the actor Chuck Lowe, is sort of, he's got a lot of machismo, a lot of braggadocious, and he he can't help but just spend money after their big score and speak too loudly about all the ins and outs um, of his involvement. And Jimmy Conway, played by Robert De Niro, the incredible Robert De Niro, is starting to spiral into a paranoia. He's gotten away with something and he knows that if there are any leaks on this boat, his comfortable position is very, very fleeting and very, very fragile. Bang. Needle drop. Cream sunshine of your love. And a glorious slow motion close-up of Robert De Niro smoking. This is Martin Scorsese's craftsmanship on show. Writ large. This is like the Hall of Fame thing, this is in the montage, are some of the greatest shots he's ever crafted. And part of his mastery is not only an aptitude for how to transition, how to tell the geography of a scene, how to incorporate music, but to command trust in his actors and allow them to pause and to tell the story of the movie internally, implicitly in a torrid, in a flux of emotions that is happening in facial tics, in the most microcosmic gestures, in the way that one smokes a cigarette, in the way one's eyes dart through a room, in the pursed appreciation and appraisal of people even entering a room and how they're entering the room and their body language. He tells an entire movie worth of story in this stare. There's probably not a better close-up in any Scorsese movie that has ever existed and probably not a better close-up in Robert De Niro's entire career and his face is the most commanding face on screen um, and conveys this incredible amount of emotions just without really ever having to say a word. It's his best close-up, perhaps, in his entire career until... Hey.
0: Emma Westwood, film critic and author.
37: I remember I was about... 18 when uh, Goodfellas came out and to see Goodfellas then was really at a time when I think Scorsese even though he was older than that was really finding himself as a filmmaker finding the energy the personal energy and really making films that uh, seem to reflect him on a more elemental level Uh, if anyone's seen Scorsese talk you'll You'll know how he has this rapid-fire way of speaking and he kind of trips over his words and uh, just goes at a 1,000 miles an hour and and Goodfellas was that kind of experience from start to finish. And it's not a a short film either. It goes for 2 hours, 26 minutes, but I didn't feel like there was a moment that I had to pause or ponder during that time. I was just taken along for this phenomenal ride Pretty much straight off the back of Goodfellas you have something like Cape Fear and that film I saw at the cinema as well and found it to be one of the most energising movie experiences I've ever come across and at that kind of level of adrenaline I found it really hard to come down from this film while very different to Goodfellas and dealing with different subject matter still had sort of an episodic quality to it uh, there was something about those very special sequences, the, the houseboat sequence at the end, which is quite over the top, but by then you just, you know, you are really along for the wide and he sold it to you, Scorsese has sold it to you by then. Uh, but also I, I saw uh, Cape Fear at a time before I'd seen the original film and the original film, the Jay Lee Lee Thompson film, is... Uh, a wonderful film in its own right. But what was really clever, I felt, with what Scorsese did and uh, therefore makes his remake equally for me as great, if not even a little more, um, just because of when I saw it and uh, the impact it had on me, what makes it such a great film is that he was able to not replicate the first film. It was all about taking it and inverting it, you could say, in some ways. So whereas in the first Cape Fear, the family was this um, impeccable 1950s impenetrable household. In the 1991 Scorsese version, it was a very flawed, fractured family. Even Katie himself, played by Robert Mitchum in the first film, that character played by Robert De Niro in the second film, and Gregory Peck playing the character of Sam Bowden, which then Nick Nolte takes on in the Scorsese film. He plays on this idea of inversion by recasting those actors but uh, having Gregory Peck be on the side of Max Cady by playing his his defence lawyer and having Robert Mitchum play on the side of justice and supposedly on Nick Nolte's side as a police officer and as great as Taxi Driver and all those early movies are, this just feels like true Martin Scorsese to me.
0: Yeah, I I, I once worked at a media department in a high school and we used to show the kids to show social values. We showed them the original Cape Fear and the remake, back to back, and then the Simpsons parody, just to demonstrate the changing social mores. One Um, of the greatest
2: Simpsons episodes ever, by the way. Oh, it's
0: total genius. Um, (laughs) But it was really interesting to see... The, the differences... I, I think, you know, I have a lot, lot of, uh, a lot of respect for people who prefer the original and can't stand the remake, because the original is great, but they were this leave-it-to-beaver family mm. in the original. And here they're all, in the remake, in Scorsese's film. they're all morally compromised. I think horror films at that point were still punishing sinners and protecting the pure and virtuous, long before Scream made everyone aware of this fact. And Cape Fear was painting everyone in shades of grey and ambiguity, and no one comes out of this the well... And, yeah, I just love it. It's a total Hitchcock throwback. It's a really over-the-top, interesting film.
2: It's, so I heard somebody describe it the other day as the best De Palma film directed by Scorsese. <laughs> there is a real Brian De Palma kind of trashiness to yeah, yeah. this film. Yeah, like I said, Cape Fear was the first Scorsese I saw at the cinemas, and I loved it when I was young. Like, me at 16, mm. this was my jam. Every and and there's still moments that are so iconic, like that opening, the the music, which is Elmer Bernstein doing Bernard Herman. Yeah, those that those horns, and then you know you're watching uh, uh, De Niro do his sort of push-ups mm. and those tattoos, and he's instantly
1: kind of sleazy and terrifying. And sexy. I mean, I think yes. this is De Niro's sexiest performance in a wow. kind of sick way. Whoa. That's very telling. <laughs> 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 There's that whole scene with Juliette Lewis, yeah. which apparently yeah. was yeah. partly improvised. Really? Wow. When Because
2: apparently she had a bit of a crush on him when mm. they sort of first started filming. He's very charming mm. and everything. And then when they meet in that scene and he go like, and so her giggling and blushing yeah. and all that, it was all very
27: real. It oh, it's, all, it's an
0: amazing performance. I was like, I, I still look at it and think how the hell... Did you get that performance out of anyone? Yes. Someone that young. And when he put his thumb in her mouth,
2: like, that was completely... She wasn't expecting it. And, like, they just kind of went with it. And there's something so sexual, but so, like, upsetting Mm. about that. Yeah, yeah. All at once. Like, it's both, like, this is both... Like, hot and horrible. Yeah. Like, it's, and it's so, and I mean, that could almost be used to describe the entire film, hot and horrible <laughs> all at once. Um, I think the final act gets a bit silly. Um, you know, the giant houseboat thing. But it was kind of Marty doing, because Marty doesn't get the chance to do full spectacle yeah. very often. Mm. You know, he doesn't get the chance to do, you know, a straight up Hollywood thriller. Mm. And, you know, by the time De Niro's speaking in tongues and half-burned and going... It's very weird. Yeah. But the first two-thirds of this film, I think, are still brilliant. And it's for those reasons you described, Lee. Because yeah. the way um, Scorsese minds the relationships and then has Katie just pull at all the threads. Yeah. And also, I mean, poor Ileana Douglas's character in this film is still one of the scariest scenes in cinema history yeah. when she's... when um, yeah, De Niro... Yeah. Uh, Max Katie attacks her.
0: It's... Yeah, Terrible. it's it's a very full on film, and it's so surprising that he goes. I mean, that's his range; is he can go from a film like that to a film like *Age of Innocence*, which is just so gentle and like a G-rated film, basically. Crazy.
1: Yeah, I mean, *The Age of Innocence* is a really stunning period film. It's set in 1870s New York with, you know, this genteel up across society, and it, you know, there's not, there's not an a tiny little bit of violence or profanity in this film—it's so much not a Scorsese film in that way—and yet it's about tribalism. It's about it, there's emotional violence. I mean, the scene where um, you know the Winona Ryder character basically, sh- you know, tells her husband what he's going to do with the rest of his life—it's violent. And the way mm. the way society closes in on Daniel Day Lewis, this character who can't escape the habits the rituals the beliefs the deep ingrained kind of nature of tradition mm. i think it is a scorsese yeah film. i was
2: just thinking geez this doesn't sound like any of his other movies at all yeah <laughs> so like, yeah,
1: yeah it it's, fits in it's an as way much as
24: mean streets or yeah. as much as yeah um, mm. the goodfellas yeah mm.
0: so mayor writer and curator
38: It seems ironic now when we think of the 90s as the era of Tarantino, but 1994 was apparently an age of innocence. That year, the Academy Awards were dominated by costume dramas, with wins for Schindler's List by Steven Spielberg, Jane Campion's The Piano, and Martin Scorsese's The Age of Innocence. Among them for Gabriella Pescucci for her costumes, whose Elegance, yet brutality, summarised the film's satirical, cruel, sensual realisation of Edith Wharton's novel. It was new territory for Scorsese, and perhaps the only one of his films that could be legitimately programmed alongside those of his beloved Powell and Pressburger. The bursts of colour that are used as fade-outs were inspired by The Archer's Black Narcissus, and there's much else of the rigid, hysterical, colonial world that appears in this film. Perhaps, above all, Daniel Day-Lewis's hands, those huge hands used to such great great effect in another film of the year, In the Name of the Father, where they're both gentle and brutal. In this film, their size is constrained by the world that Day-Lewis's Newton Archer finds himself in, scenes where he opens boxes of books and caresses them lovingly, and most memorable of all, unbuttons the Countess's glove in a closed carriage, speak volumes about the ways in which early New York and its aristocratic Mayflower founders were as cruel and as exuberantly sensual as those of the later more working class immigrants in the films we think of as classically Scorsese. Working with Elmer Bernstein on the score and with Elaine and Saul Bass on the title sequence, The Age of Innocence could also be said to be Scorsese's most cinematic film, a film about the origins of America itself, one clearly influenced by possibly the greatest adaptation of all time, Lucino Visconti's The Leopard, with its sense of a changing world and an uncomprehending patriarch surveying it. Perhaps it says everything that I saw it in a cinema that still had a Wurlitzer organ, The Age of Innocence may have seemed nostalgic and historical at the time, but from here, more than 20 years later, it seems itself like the marker of a changing world.
0: Mel Campbell, critic and author.
39: Martin Scorsese's 1993 film The Age of Innocence begins with a montage of flowers unfurling in stop motion to a lush orchestral theme, superimposed on textures of lace and roundhand calligraphy. The sequence, designed by film title legends Elaine and Saul Bass, introduces the film's themes of layering and symbolism. As Joanne Woodward's wry narration explains, they all lived in a kind of hieroglyphic world. The real thing was never said or done or even thought, but only represented by a set of arbitrary signs. In particular, the 19th century was obsessed with the secret language of flowers, and this is a film in which fragile hopes blossom and wilt, small gestures carry savage meanings, and letters have life-changing consequences. By contrast, the teaser trailer for Scorsese's forthcoming film The Irishman, a crime drama about the notorious disappearance of union leader Jimmy Hoffa, succinctly sketches the macho terrain where many people feel Scorsese has done his finest work. Against a black screen, a single bullet casing drifts through several actors' names. Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Harvey Keitel. Whatever. Whatever. The Age of Innocence isn't convenient to the truism of Scorsese as a chronicler of masculinity because it speaks to feminized themes, romantic love and social repression, but it showcases the elegance and subtlety that Scorsese can muster. Adapted from a period novel by Edith Wharton, it's set in 1870s upper-class New York, a rarefied milieu that, like a hothouse flower, has bloomed and vanished. Scorsese's gaze is mobile and painterly, filling the frame with textures of clothing and opulent interiors. The graceful society scenes seem to have leapt straight from the artworks on the walls of the grand houses as the camera brushes around saloons and dining tables, skimming the heads of ballroom waltzers and bowler-hatted businessmen. Shots dissolve seamlessly into blots of colour. And while it's easy for period films to feel slow and stultifying, as if mummified in the past, The Age of Innocence is vivid, even feverish, in its sensuous focus on detail. Scorsese alights eagerly on the hothouse flowers in buttonholes, vases and corsages, on jewels glinting in darkened theatres, on lavishly laden dinner tables, on the paths of the character's avid gazes. The bright outlines of letters and keys burn into view as their significance sears itself into the story. So much about this film echoes the workings of memory, the way our thoughts wander and dwell on what become, by repetition, the key moments of our lives. If you've seen the film, you'll certainly recall the dreamy golden scene in which Newland Archer, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, watches Ellen Olenska, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, gazing across the spangled water and arbitrarily decides he will only approach her if she turns to face him before a random sailboat passes the nearby lighthouse. I also love the scene in which Newland, riding in a carriage with Ellen, presses his lips to the tender underside of her wrist, exposed by her unbuttoned glove. It's a moment even more perversely erotic for its symbolic orifice. But what stuck with me most is Scorsese's fire-lit staging of the true guile of Newland's wife May, played by Winona Ryder. We see her at first as her distracted fiancé does, like a graceful innocent. She's often shown smiling softly or turning to look over her shoulder like a swan or a startled doe. But as May tells her husband that Ellen will be returning permanently to Europe, Scorsese's camera lands on hot coals slipping from the fire and then on the long train of May's wedding gown slithering out of Newland's study. And when she lays her head and her plot in Newland's lap, it's not in modest surrender but in a crushing act of domination. An assassination of the soul to rival the most gruesome gangland hit.
0: Anthony Morris, critic and
17: author.
40: It's pretty much the most basic insight there is to say that Casino is about death. Uh, But that's not gonna stop me from saying it. It's a film that opens with Robert De Niro getting blown up in a car and flung into a neon hell. So it's not exactly subtle about its themes. And while it turns out that that's not the literal death of De Niro's character, Sam Rothstein, the film's final shot is pretty much the same as the first one. He's in hell, though a very different one. The most obvious death that Consino is concerned with is the death of the old mob run Las Vegas. By the end of the film, the city itself is still standing, well, parts of it. But like Rothstein, its spirit has been destroyed. It's not a physical death but it's a death of a form of entertainment that was uniquely American, Uh, it's being replaced by a bland, generic experience. And beyond that obvious death that the film is concerned with, and the string of character deaths that go along with it, Casino is also a western, and that's a genre that's almost always, when it's at its best at least, about the passing of time. Casino isn't quite the good, the bad, and the ugly, but it runs for about as long. It is set out in the Wild West, and by the end there's only one man left standing. Uh, Plus it also features Sam Elliott and LQ Jones, who are about as Western as you can get without getting Clint Eastwood. Like Las Vegas, the Western as mainstream entertainment was also dead by the mid-90s when Casino was made. The film is also the thing that it's about. It's an attempt to recapture and recreate something that's gone now and can never be restored. But my favourite part of Casino's obsession with death is Don Ward, the dim bulb floor boss who gets his job by nepotism And when he gets fired, it triggers, to a large extent, Rothstein's downfall. Ward is played by John Bloom, who's better known to some, at least, as Joe Bob Briggs, who made his fame by reviewing and championing drive-in movies back in the 1980s. Drive-ins now, and back in the 90s, are as dead as westerns or mob-run Vegas. But whether it was intentional or not, and to be fair to Bloom, he is perfectly cast in the role, it's always seemed fitting to me that in a film about waving off a range of uniquely American forms of entertainment uh, that the drive-in should get a tiny corner of the screen. Sarah Caldwell, Exhibition Registrar.
41: Um, I think when I think of Martin Scorsese films, the thing I think most of is his tendency to linger on characters well after the triumph or the downfall or the sportsman-like fail to win or or the win <laughs> or the relationship kind of moment. He tends to linger on his characters after that crucial moment where most films would would stop. And there you see the anti-climax or the, the ordinary that might follow the extraordinary. The most striking example of this I find in Casino where the closing scenes watch very <laughs> sort of objectively uh, Sam Ace Rosten played by Robert De Niro counting uh, in a trailer park (laughs) uh, doing accounting and after all that he's done all that he's been through all of the characters that have been affected by him after all of that's over it's a quiet very ordinary quite boring (laughs) actually moment and there's just something about that in In that film and a number of his other films where his tendency to stay with people after many films would have frozen in time and left them behind uh, is quite fascinating. You know, it can sound quite bleak to think of it that way, but actually I find it's quite inherently hopeful because surely there's not much hope in being frozen in time And the true sort of humanity of us is revealed in those moments after our successes or after our moments of regret. And that's where true development and evolution can occur. So I think that might be the favourite thing for me in Scorsese's works.
2: So Casino was the film I was talking about before where every Scorsese tick is pushed to a million and it's again it's because he's charting i think there's two loose trilogies he's made in his life and one of them is the the mob trilogy which is essentially mean streets is kind of kids playing at being mobsters really it's the young people who want to get into that and and sort of are on the outside of it Goodfellas is your low level mobsters trying to kind of, you know, prove themselves and make it big. And then Casino is the big end of town where it's like, we're giving you a multi-million dollar casino to run. Mm. And it's how they work on all three of those levels. The way Casino uses music is ridiculous. Like the film is literally wallpapered with music. There's never there's no score. It's all found tracks and it's it's just so dazzlingly edited and put together and the way this thing is shot by robert richardson who i think came on with this film and is still scorsese's oh i think him and rodrigo prieto kind of swap between being his cinematographers but yeah the way this film is shot is exquisite and it must have taken days to get some of these shots in the can like Mm. it's ridiculous and and you know like there is a feeling of this being a bit of a goodfellas retread but i i disagree i think the more i watch it i think it's a vastly different story i think it's it it is a, it's a bit of a descent into hell mm-hmm. um, as the opening kind of flags and is just yeah it's it it stands up as its as its own and I think it's a much more complicated film to reckon with. I think there are more complicated relationships at play here and
0: mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a thornier film than Goodfellas is. I mean those yeah those cinematographer relationships are very important to it. But I think and we were we flagging this earlier is that you know so many directors we know have that, that beloved. Uh, collaborator who helps define them, whether it be a cinematographer or a writer or a producer. And as we said earlier, there is one... For Scorsese, there's really only... If you had to pick one person, there is only one person it could be. And it's not Shannon Marenko writer and presenter. Right, Scorsese, uh,
42: just too many things, too many things. How am I supposed to do this? Okay, here are two uh, very needlessly specific Scorsese things that for some reason really resonate for me uh but, but they're both edits uh so maybe I should wait until film schoonmaker is chosen as a hyphenates filmmaker of the month uh I might have missed the brief entirely uh with this uh but no no there's no time there's no time they're the same person anyway uh and in honor of this moment I will also talk very fast lest my lungs stop working at any given moment uh that's why he talks uh fast because of his asthma Okay, uh, something I can't get out of my head ever since I first saw it, uh, is in his doco, My Voyage to Italy. Uh, It's eight minutes in. He's on the roof of his old apartment building where he grew up uh, on Elizabeth Street. Uh, And he's on the right of frame. It's like a medium close up. And he's talking about his old neighborhood. And then there's a cut. It's a jump cut almost.
14: And this is actually the building I'm standing on is the one I grew up in, 253 Elizabeth. Elizabeth Street was Sicily. And every building was a different village.
42: It's the same location. He's still on the roof. It's slightly wider, but now he's centered in the frame. Now, if you track that down, you're, you're going to be utterly confused as to why I'm losing my mind over it. But I cannot get over that cut. It just—it captivates me. That cut. I don't know why. It's—I I don't know. I just—I just don't know. I just love it. Uh, and uh, there's another moment uh, from Casino, which is my favorite film of his. Uh, I could crap on for days about Casino. Uh, and have, uh, repeatedly. Uh, But my my favourite shot ever in all of cinema is in Casino. But there's another one. It's about 21 minutes in. It's a close-up on De Niro. Uh, He's watching uh, the big whale, K.K. Ijikawa, uh, lose all his money. Uh, The camera pushes in on De Niro into a close-up, and he has a drag on his cigarette, and then it crossfades to the exact same shot about one second later when he's mid-exhale.
28: In the casino, the cardinal
43: rule is to keep them playing and keep them coming back. The longer they play, the more they lose. In the end, we get it all.
42: So the smoke's already coming out of his mouth. So we don't see him uh, starting to exhale. We just see it already half-emerged out of his mouth. No idea why Scorsese did that. Just why, why? Why would you do that? Why? It's so strange... Uh, and compelling and mystical almost. I, I, I just love it. I love that. So there's uh, just two things uh, that I love that uh, Scorsese might not even be directly responsible for. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, but he is, uh, he, he's a perfect filmmaker. No question. Uh, I love you, Martin Scorsese. Please return my calls.
0: Yeah, Shannon is absolutely right about those cuts. They're they're captivating. There's also another one very similar to it, about 17 minutes into The Wolf of Wall Street when DiCaprio gets out of the car and there's this fade into him already being out of the car. I mean, she's got a preternatural sense of rhythm, I think. She's got idiosyncratic edits that just should not work. They break so many rules. Mm. And if you tried to replicate what she was doing, it would look terrible. Uh, And she's still doing it. Like, she started doing these cuts in 67. And she's still doing them. I remember I noticed her when... I think it was Departed that made me really sit up and take note. That opening sequence over, uh, you know, where they cut to the title card and then cut back to uh, DiCaprio in the prison cell. I thought, I was watching that going, oh my god, I've never seen anything like that. I can't wait until the rest of editing catches up with her. (laughs) And I thought, maybe in a decade, it's over a decade later, and no one has caught up with her. She's still in a class of her own, and I think that it's just not going to happen. She's, She's not just ahead of her time. She is in a class of her own. And I honestly believe she's the greatest editor of all time.
2: And well, that's the thing. If, you've, if you're going to make a case for Scorsese being the greatest director of all time, you have to make a case for Thelma being the greatest editor. Yeah. it's and, and it's that same thing. It was like when I you know, was looking at Mad Max Fury Road and seeing that George Miller was making this film at 70. You're like, hang on. Cinematographer John Seale is also 70, and he's shooting that crazy. Yeah. It's the same deal. It's like is Scorsese is still being relevant, still being, So is Thelma. Thelma is still pushing the language of editing forward. And they're about... You know, they're a very similar age. I think... It, I want to say she's slightly older, but I, I don't yeah, know that for sure. sure. Um, but, yeah, they are... She is absolutely... Stakes a claim as much as anybody as the greatest film editor to
0: have ever lived. And, yeah, and Shannon mentioned in there My Voyage to Italy, uh, the documentary series he made about growing up on Italian neorealism. Uh, it was the second series of this nature that he's made following a personal journey through American cinema. And for those who have seen these, particularly My Voice to Italy, I think it had as big an effect on them as his narrative work. Mm. Reese Graham, filmmaker.
44: I remember reading, I think, in Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, there was always stories about um, Scorsese's film obsessiveness, how, you know, they tape up the windows and take lots of cocaine and watch many, many films uh, in a day. You know, I love filmmakers who are kind of wildly crazy, in love with film. And I think that one of the things that Scorsese has always done extraordinarily is as well as making all of his, you know, wonderful films, he's also revived and uh, continue to kind of, uh, or try to inspire passion in films for other people. And so my favourite Scorsese film without equal is um, My Voyage to Italy, where he, over four hours, he investigates how he discovered cinema through watching Italian films at home, um, how he discovered Rossellini, Antonioni, um, The Seeker, you know, the, this incredible passion that he brings to both looking at the kind of history of, of mostly post-war uh, Italian film, but also unravelling the kind of, you know, cultural themes. And, and it's just one of those films that you can watch over and over again. And I remember having seen lots and lots of the films that he talked about, but as soon as I watched that documentary, you know, the four hours flew by in what felt like minutes I just dragged out every copy that I could of all the films that he discussed and watched them again with with renewed love and passion. And that's something that I kind of deeply admire on an an objective level, but also as a documentary about passion for filmmaking, Voyage to Italy has no equal.
0: So my Voyage to Italy is my favourite piece of film appreciation ever. Uh, I hadn't seen much Italian neorealism when I saw this series and it made me fall in love with it. It's four hours long and I struggle to not watch it in one sitting. Like, I have to force myself to turn it off because it's four hours. And re-watching it, I realised what a huge impact it's had on my life. I think in a lot of ways it inspired Bazzura Project, parts of Bazzura Project, my TV show, and this podcast. I had an urge to talk about film in a way that makes the unfamiliar forge a connection to it. Someone who hasn't seen this film and make you feel as if it's your favourite film ever and and sort of being that conduit to it. And in some ways, the way he describes each director was an extension of that. And I think a big part of that came from the way he talked about them.
7: The
14: impulse of neorealism, to do justice to life as it is, to things as they are, is still with us, even today. I like to think of neorealism as the the seed from which a beautiful solid tree has grown and the branches on that tree represent virtually all the major Italian filmmakers of the post-war era for me it's the most precious moment in film history
0: I wanted to communicate a love of cinema the way Marty did not I don't even think i it was a conscious thing I've only just realised I've just been trying to emulate this documentary you yeah. know for the last however long I, I saw of
2: myth and cr- like when he talks about Umberto D mm. I like, cried Bucket, oh, yeah. like I think that came just before the the interval, and it was one of those things where the light comes up, and I was just like, nobody can see me like this. This <laughs> is sobbing. It's yeah, I, and I think one thing that's never mentioned is I think, as well as being one of the world's great filmmakers and film preservers and film appreciators, I think Marty's one of the one of the best audiences yeah the way both the way he processes things and then and then articulates that is so beautiful and so relatable as well like it's not like he's like the best film professor you've ever had but also when you're watching him like griffin dunn talks about this in after hours um and we see the and we see it on camera constantly during the uh documentary public speaking where he's interviewing Mm. fran libowitz yes
0: it's like his entire body shakes when he laughs yeah He's such an appreciator of other people. Like he yes. loves other people being creative and funny and interesting. Yeah, he yeah. gets
2: off on it so much, and he's so into it to just shut up and listen and appreciate it. And and like the way like Griffin Dunn would say, he'd be halfway through a tank and he'd look out the corner of his eye, and Marty's got his back turned to him, and his back's just shaking because he's <laughs> laughing so hard. <laughs> I've seen a time like because he was a big fan of Don Rickles, and Don Rickles was doing a gig, and Marty's laughing so much, he start Don Rickles started making jokes about Marty having an asthma attack. <laughs> <laughs> he's just,
0: yeah, I think he's just such a beautiful audience. And he's translated that. You know, we mentioned the Film Foundation earlier. He has managed to translate his love into something tangible that has yes. helped film history. Has
2: value, yeah. Has preserved cultures in
0: some ways. Alicia Malone, film reporter and author.
30: I am so excited I get to talk about one of my favourite filmmakers, Martian Scorsese. Because not only do I love what he puts on screen, I also love what he does behind the scenes to help preserve cinema history. He has a non-profit organization called the Film Foundation, and they are responsible for preserving, restoring and saving hundreds of films from all different countries Films that would have otherwise be lost to the ravages of time. You know, it's so sad how many films we have lost in cinema history because they weren't stored properly or because film just wasn't thought of as being an important cultural medium. And his company are so highly involved in just saving cinema history. It's absolutely inspiring. And he won the inaugural Robert Osborne Award at last year's Turner Classic Movies Film Festival for the fact that he preserves all these films. And I loved his speech because he talked about the importance of film historians. Of course, Robert Osborne was not only a host on Turner Classic Movies, he was also a film historian himself. So I want to read just a section of his speech. He said, Film historians are the people who lovingly preserve all the lore all the treasures and who recite it to whomever expresses even a little bit of interest. They give you the history through the stories, the anecdotes, the details that have been remembered and passed down. They're spreading the word to invite more people in and enlarge the culture. And that's exactly what I feel like Scorsese does. If you hear him talk about polish film or a japanese movie he does it with so much enthusiasm he makes it accessible he talks about why he loves that movie and i know that he has influenced so many people to go outside of their mainstream viewing and try different films from different countries and it's also what i feel like your podcast does as well is invite people in share cinema history and make it fun and keep these movies alive so, huge thanks to Martin Scorsese. One day, I want to interview him. One day.
0: Haley Inch, film critic.
30: So, I've been lucky enough
45: in my life to have been in the same room as Martin Scorsese exactly once. And it was at the 2014 Toronto International Film Festival. And Scorsese was there in order to present a new restored version of The Colour of Pomegranates, which was directed by Sergei Parajanov. And this is part of the World Cinema Project as part of Scorsese's Film Foundation, which is basically devoted to the restoration and education of film, not only from the history of Hollywood, but basically encompassing the, the entire cinematic output of the world, which is quite extraordinary on a level. I, when I think about it, I don't think that there is another figure from American cinema that essentially gives that big of a shit about world cinema and the history of cinema. And I think that's what keeps drawing me back to Scorsese, not only because his films are so foundational to my you know cinematic outlook but the fact that he has managed to introduce me to so many films that I or many others would not have known about and may have never had the chance to know about if he didn't take an interest in their restoration pulling them out of history again and placing them in front of contemporary audiences I mean you look at the world cinema project alone which has you know encompassed films from Cuba, Côte d'Ivoire, India, Philippines, Cameroon, Turkey, Mexico, Sri Lanka, Mauritania, Indonesia, Iran, and heaps of other countries besides. It's focused on works by Ousmane Simbené, Huxiao Sien, Edward Yang, films that were really in danger of completely disappearing from the cinematic cultural landscape. And... There's so many of these films where I probably wouldn't have bothered looking at them if I hadn't realised that it was part of the Film Foundation's work and that Scorsese himself had, like, spoken about them and was encouraging people to see them. I mean, I had no idea what the colour of pomegranates was about when I went to go see it at TIFF. I just went because I realised, oh my goodness, I'm going to be able to see Scorsese in person. But then actually... Seeing him talk about this film with such enormous passion and with clear enormous passion for the work of restoration itself, it was a hugely humbling thing. This is a little bit from Scorsese himself on The Colour of Pomegranates. Watching Sergei Parajanov's The Colour of Pomegranates or Say it Nova is like opening a door and walking into another dimension where time has stopped and beauty has been unleashed. On a very basic level, it's a biography of the Armenian poet Sayat Nova, but before all else, it's a cinematic experience. And you come away remembering images, repeated expressive movements, costumes, objects, compositions, colours. And like, to be honest, I feel like a lot of that audience who was there that day in 2014, they were there because Scorsese was going to be there. They had no idea about this film either and a lot of them left during the screening because this was an extraordinary piece of haptic cinema that was all about images and emotion, not necessarily about a storyline or a narrative that was easy to follow. And I think for a lot of people it was a bit beyond them, but everyone who remained in that cinema seemed to come out of it fundamentally changed. I know that I was fundamentally changed and I started thinking about cinema in an entirely different way. And I wouldn't have seen it if it hadn't been for Scorsese. And I honestly feel like that when we end up looking back on his career and on his work, the work that he has done on restoration and making sure that films that should have an audience get an audience is going to be just as important or even more important than the extraordinary films that he has given to us already. So with that over-familiarity that you feel for a filmmaker who has completely changed your life in so many ways, thank you, Marty.
0: So Marty does have that incredible passion for film, but his passion extends, and as you said, comedy. Uh, He just loves art, and he is a huge, huge fan of music, and you can tell that not just from his soundtracks. Like his soundtracks are an absolute joy. You can tell how much fun he has putting them together and you really feel that passion when you see his concert films. Tim Egan, filmmaker and cinematographer.
3: One of the best known things about Marty is his passion and his love for film history. He's very well known, very highly talked about. He he revisits film history. He loves telling people about them. He makes documentaries about film history and, and film genre and Uh, movements in film Uh, it's always been something that's been really important to him but uh, something that's talked about less is he's as passionate about the music uh, of his time and musical history as well Um, he's made some of the great music uh, documentaries uh, the awesome uh, concert film Last Waltz was the band's last performance uh, and one of my favourite films that's very rarely talked about uh, in his canon, uh, Shine a Light uh, the great um, concert film of The Stones recorded at the uh, Beacon Theatre a few years ago. A... Oh, I... nah, the attention and love that he puts into a concert film, uh, I've heard him talk about people trying pushed him into making a documentary about The Stones, and he said what he really wanted to capture was the feeling of them on stage he said that's the story of the Stones watching them on stage, watching them go through it and just the little moments that he captures all the way through that film of of Keith leaning on uh, Ronnie or um, just Charlie drumming away in the backgrounds and the energy and life that these guys put into it after so long Uh, it's really amazing, it's beautiful and he's, he's absolutely right that that's where the music lives and that's where the Stones really live Uh, I love that he got in some of the greatest cinematographers in the world to essentially be camera operators on that thing. And it looks like no other concert film. Uh, There's discussions in the film early on uh, where they're worried about setting fire to the stones because they're bringing in so much light to really get a, a beautiful image and a beautiful exposure. Concerts are usually filmed in very dark and they wanted something that looked like a million bucks and you really got a sense of that. He puts cameras on stage, he flies around them, he moves in between them and he has dozens and dozens of incredibly gifted cinematographers capturing every moment. The joy in that film is infectious uh, and it all comes from Marty uh, He's discussed many times what the Stones mean to him and he managed to put that on screen. It made me, as someone who's never really liked the Stones that much, it made me a fan. And that's Marty's greatest gift. He transfers his enthusiasm and his love of anything along to you. That's why he's the master.
26: Thank you!
3: Thomas Caldwell,
0: critic and festival programmer.
46: It's hard to think of being a cinephile and not loving the films of Martin Scorsese. Although I, I have met at least two people who, who who aren't into his films, who I also uh, happen to respect, so there are always anomalies. But as a rule, Scorsese really is just one of these key figures in cinema. And I know a lot of people are probably going to talk about Taxi Driver, but I'm pretty sure that was the first one I saw as an 18 year old, you know, cinema study student, and really just having my mind blown. And and I, I, again, like many people, there are those those ones that really stand out as the peak of his career being Taxi Driver, Raging Bull and Goodfellas, all amazing films. But I'd I'd actually, there are so many films that come really close to the greatness of those three, but I would add one more, which I don't think many people probably will, and that's his 1997 film, Kunden, which never really got the audience it deserved. Um, The the studio backing the, the film was Disney and didn't promote it. Due to economic pressures from the Chinese government at the time, um, which is not surprising, as its Kunden depicts the 14th Dalai Lama's rather bewildering childhood and subsequent conflict with Communist China that resulted in him fleeing to India. Um, I mean, Scorsese has often made films with faith as a, a key theme or a, a minor theme, but this obviously he's one like The Last Temptation of Christ and Silence, where faith is a really big part of of the film. And it's not an obvious Scorsese film, but, but you've got things in there, you know, it's, it's that really highly subjective storytelling that Scorsese is just so renowned for in in creating this extraordinarily vivid portrait of the Dalai Lama. I mean, the, the cinematography just constantly focuses on these small details that just just convey the, the compassion and, and, and progressive belief of, of this extraordinary man. And, you, the way the film is edited and the flip glasses, uh, extraordinary score, just beautifully incorporate uh, the, the Dalai Lama's visions with with actual uh, events. I just love the way this film you know portrays this this man who sort of missed out in childhood but still developed this strong sense of humour and a. A fascination for modern technology and this really willful defiance against hypocrisy and, and, and cruelty, uh, both which he witnessed externally and within his own monastery. So, look, I'm going to give, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here to give a special shout out to, to Kundan, a film that I feel often gets overlooked, but I think it's a really core film in Scorsese's filmography and it's also responsible for one of my very favorite jokes in The Sopranos. The Sopranos* being such a great kind of extension of Goodfellas. You've got the character of Christopher who's a gangster but obsessed with becoming a screenwriter himself when he loves Hollywood and he loves filmmaking and there's a there's a scene in The Sopranos where our gangster Christopher is at an event and he sees Scorsese and he just yells out
27: yeah. "Mordi!"
25: Drew McQueen. There's a moment in an episode of The Sopranos featuring Michael Imperioli uh, where he sees Martin Scorsese at a premiere and he goes to yell at him, hey Marty, hey Marty, I even love Kundun and he's trying to get his attention and it's treated as a joke and I get it. Uh, Certainly there is some truth to the idea that New York mobsters and East Coast mobsters are infatuated with their own portrayal on film. Uh, I know I did some work in New York for a while and worked with some guys that were connected and and mobbed up, and uh, it's true. They, They are absolutely infatuated with the way mobsters have been portrayed on film. And to some degree, I think Scorsese has become known for that, and there is a sense that with the Irishman, he's returning to what he does best. I would argue it is a misunderstanding of Scorsese, though. I don't think Kondoon or Age of Innocence is any different than Goodfellas or Casino. I think they are all very much of a piece from that era. And what they are is not about the world they are set in. Instead, they are observational, anthropological storytelling where someone takes a look at a culture and cross-sections that culture to such a degree that every detail of it becomes broken down and he looks at the way things are codified and the way people have to maneuver within those worlds. That's what those movies are. And if you look at the way Kundun is shot and you look at the way Goodfellas is shot, it is an identical voices filmmaker. It is about things like the the way mandalas work and the way sand grains are used, or it's about the way a gangster gets out of the car and the suspension elevates a couple of inches, or it's about the little details in those worlds that you would notice if you were immersed in that world or if you stepped into it and that's very much what I think Scorsese was doing in that particular stretch of his career is he became an anthropologist and I look at Age of Innocence I look at Goodfellas I look at Kundun they are identical in storytelling and in visual beats and in the way he injects himself into a society so while I think it's very funny and, you know, kind of hilarious that we get an actual cast member of Goodfellas pretending that he's a gangster yelling at Scorsese that he loves Kundun because he's trying to curry favor with him, I think there is a greater connection between Goodfellas and Kundun than there is between Mean Streets and Goodfellas. And I think the filmmaker, who Scorsese is, has changed so dramatically from era to era that... Uh, it's it's easier to group things based on voice than it is based on subject matter.
1: The next film that Scorsese did was Bringing Out the Dead in um, 1999, mm. and I mean this is kind of considered by a lot of people as one of his more minor films. But mm. I'm a big fan. It's got Nicolas Cage as this as this kind of um, strung out ambulance driver driving the streets of New York, he can't sleep and he's he's haunted by the ghosts of the people he couldn't save. And it's just a really trippy film. It and is trippy, yeah. yeah That's a great word. The cinematography is really interesting because, you know, a lot of it is it's set at night and the characters are kind of shot with this sort of halo effect around them, as though it's kind of heaven, it's kind of hell. It's just it really takes you into this into this character, who's kind of living this this existence that's that's hyper real, mm. yeah, yeah.
2: And, and and yeah, they're all kind of tarnished angels. And it's I think the saviour concept. Even though Cage's character is constantly wanting to quit, I think the saviour complex is the one thing that drives him. I love also the Gonzo aspect of it because mm. it's written by it's based on a novel by Joe Connolly, who was an ambulance driver for nine years mm. and wrote this out of his experience. And it's almost this M.A.S.H. type sort of gonzo tale because then you've got all the other drivers he's partnered Mm. with, um, you you know, from...
1: Ving James, Ving
2: Rains is kind of um, evangelistic type character. To you know, uh, he's, who's the other uh, no, John Sizemore. Goodman, Sizemore's character, yeah. who's just a complete psycho. Yeah, <laughs>
47: um,
2: and you know, and it's it's so, and it's written by Paul Schrader. It's yeah, adapted yeah. by yeah. Paul yeah, Schrader, yeah. which led to this film being at times called Ambulance Driver, Taxi Driver. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but yeah, there is a real. I think there's a real pulse to this film. I... The, on second view, the vision stuff didn't work as well for me, but everything else I still adored. I, I, I really love um, the energy, uh, as you say, the hallucinogenic energy of this film.
0: Sarah Ward, film critic.
24: There's a feeling of melancholy at the heart of many of Martin Scorsese's films and at the core of many of his on-screen men. is a feeling of loneliness, of alienation, of sadness, of desolation, whether it's sparked by existential angst, as embodied by Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, or plugged by Rampant Excess, as the Wolf of Wall Street explores through the figure of Jordan Belfort. Mean Streets' Johnny Boy and Charlie, Raging Bull's Jake LaMotta, The Age of Innocence's Newland Archer, Silence's Sebastián Rodriguez, the list goes on and includes all of the Scorsese films that I haven't mentioned. But turning 20 years old this year, Bring Out the Dead just might be Scorsese's melancholic masterpiece, is also one of Paul Schrader's masterpieces, and a fitting companion piece to First Reformed. Scorsese made many a masterpiece, but there's such a haunting, lingering quality to the tale of Frank Pierce, a rundown paramedic both escaping from and exacerbating his woes by tending to other people's injuries on the graveyard shift. It helps that, thanks to Nicolas Cage, Frank's inner turmoil both bubbles quietly and overflows commandingly, and what proves one of Cage's very best performances. Just imagine a world where Scorsese and Cage had teamed up multiple times, as the filmmaker has with Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio.
0: So I usually I don't like it when people talk about their least favourite thing. I don't like worst of lists. I mm. don't like, you know, this is the worst film this director made. It's like, they made 50, you know, give them a break. But I want to talk about Gangs of New York just briefly, because it's it's probably my least favourite Scorsese Oh. or it's a contender for my least favourite and I think it's great like I really like this film a lot and it's my least favourite and that was when I was like oh this guy's really good if if this is my least favourite and this guy's amazing because I, I would happily watch this film again like it's it's really yeah you're doing something right why yeah. is
1: it your least favourite? I don't know it
0: just doesn't all, all the all the elements don't click for me like I like each individual element they don't come together for me. It is definitely flawed. And it was a passion
2: project. It was something he was trying to make since the 1970s. Mm. Finally got the cachet. Well, basically, he, uh, uh, this was his first collaboration with Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm. And DiCaprio, obviously, being not too far from Titanic, had the juice to finally get Scorsese the budget he needed to make it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those two, obviously, have gone on to a fruitful collaboration. Mm. But, yeah, you're right. Um, it's the one film... I think this is the one Scorsese film where... uh, One of the very few Scorsese films where the female character feels like a device. Yeah. Cameron Diaz's character doesn't feel like a real person. Doesn't feel fully fleshed out. She feels like something there to pit DiCaprio and Lewis against each other. Mm. I think DiCaprio... Is kind of a little bit callow for the role. He seems a bit too young and, like, kind of, I don't know, it doesn't seem like the warrior yet. He hasn't quite aged into that. But then, you know, Day Lewis's Bill the Butcher is iconic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. And the, um, you know, the production design, everything is incredible. You know, bit plays like um, John C. Riley
0: and Liam Neeson make mm-hmm. a huge impact in small roles in this film. And obviously the collaboration with DiCaprio paid off, because as you say, they've worked together a lot since then, and they went straight after this into The Aviator. Stephen A. Russell, critic and arts journalist.
34: Scorsese has always had an ear for the old razzmatazz, from Ellen Burstyn dreaming of a better life and Alice doesn't live here anymore, to Liza and De Niro in New York, New York. But he outdoes himself with the jazz-age glamour of golden-age Hollywood in the Howard Hughes biopic The Aviator. Leo DiCaprio's first and far better go round with The Great Gatsby vibes. He plays the movie maker, money shaker and sky-high flyboy, who soars up, up and away and way too high, and then comes crashing down to earth again. Such a visually rich film, peeling back the diamond-encrusted gilt edges of this world. It's also a haunted wasteland that posits Hughes as Miss Havisham, full of great ideas and unrealistic expectations but the real reason I'm totally into it is the battle royale between Canadian crooner Rufus Wainwright and our Kate Blanchett as the goddess Catherine Hepburn, with the pair determined to outdo each other in a pantsuit and secure the campus on ground. And who wouldn't
2: want a part of that? See, it's funny with the that avi- you're saying like about your least favourite. I think I mean I hate to say this The Age of Innocence is a film I've not seen I didn't get to rewatch it for this podcast I watched it when I was 18 completely bounced off me yeah. but I can look at it and say this is a good film like it's well made just bounce off me I really want to see it again and I was uh, do it uh, do I was it. sad that I didn't get to do this yeah. but of the newer stuff I've got to say I think we're leading into a period here I think the 2000s is my least favourite period of Scorsese Right. and The Aviator is one of those reasons I like The Aviator I think The Aviator is fine other than a few touches, I feel like The Aviator could have been made by anybody. Mm. I think it's one of the few films... It's one of the most anonymous films Scorsese's made.
0: I think, yeah, in some ways, yes, but he still does that. He replicates the film process. Yes. And there's a lot a- of, like, And makes
2: the hip-burn scenes look like they're colorized. Yes. <laughs> like, 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 like the, the grass Michael's is blue colorized. or
0: aquamarine, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. But it is... I mean, there's, there's a real, like, weird stunt casting. I remember there were rumours in the 90s of him doing a Rat Pack film with, like, Tom Hanks as yes. Dean Martin and... Uh, yeah, John Travolta, John Travolta, is, Sinatra, and Jim Carrey as Jerry Lewis, and uh, was it Wesley Snipes. Is, yeah, yeah, you remember be. that rumor? Maybe yeah. we had the same issue of Premiere magazine. <laughs> <soon>. but, um, <laughs> but there is an element to that stunt casting in this fight where it's like Kate Blanchett is so almost too too much of a of, of a signal to really convince us. Catherine Hepburn, and yeah, that's one of my favorite performances ever. I love it so much. So I don't good. know if I'm convinced by it, but I love it. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's like watching The Trip, really. You know, (laughs) it's
2: just like you're just watching Cate Blanchett do a brilliant impersonation for two Mm, hours. But having said that, this is one performance that DiCaprio often gets criticised for, and I fucking love him in. I Mm. think his Howard Hughes is excellent, and it's the thing again. You see him, and he's like he doesn't look quite old enough to kind of play it, but I think he totally disappears in Howard Hughes, and it's one of my favourite DiCaprio performances. Under Scorsese.
17: Mm.
0: Well, we we were talking earlier about the fact that. You know, even though everyone loves Marty, not everyone loves Marty, which is something I discovered contacting a lot of previous guests who were like, I'd love to be involved, but I don't love it in any of the films. I've never connected to them. Some hadn't seen them. But it was really interesting talking to a lot of people who were like, yeah, no, I get it. But it's not it's not like I don't love it myself. And I've actually convinced one of those people to talk about uh, Scorsese anyway, despite the fact that she's not a huge fan. Maria Lewis, journalist and author.
48: Okay, the last time I was on this show, it was to obsess over Guillermo del Toro, um, my favorite director, and when Lee asked me to record a bit of a message about Martin Scorsese for the podcast's ninth birthday, I was a little bit cautious, to be honest, um, because I'm not the biggest Martin Scorsese fan. I know that's kind of blasphemous, uh, sacrilegious, whatever, (laughs) but... I'm a little bit out of Scorsese's uh, generational target zone, if you will, and as a woman, especially one from a mixed background, I've always found it really hard to sort of find the entry point into his films, whether it's his earlier work like Taxi Driver or Goodfellas or Gangs of New York, Wolf of Wall Street, even Shutter Island. The women are either in the deep, deep background or they're sluts, whores, or dead sluts or whores. And... You know, that's fine, whatever. Not every movie is for every person. Art is subjective. That's how it works. And although Shadow Island would maybe be my favorite film of his, I was trying to work out a movie where I could praise him top to bottom. And instead of a movie, I ended up settling on Boardwalk Empire, which is a television show. So I don't know if I'm cheating the brief here. But anyway, it was uh, it was one of HBO's big, splashy, expensive period shows. And It's kind of fucking awesome, it fits all the Scorsese things, you know, it's a sweeping crime epic and because it's a show that lasted for five years, you know, it has 57 episodes, it has this amazing ability to to really take its time with the period and take its time as it evolves and it's kind of like, in a weird way, sort of a star is born narrative, but it's like a crime is born, gangsters rise, gangsters fall, people's power and monopoly changes the way people leverage their capital becomes really interesting. Now, Scorsese executive produced the show. He only directed the pilot, but I would argue directing the pilot is probably the hardest job in terms of directorial roles on a show because the pilot is, is where you get to cast the show. You get to choose who are going to be your actors bringing these characters to life. So you get you're in charge of that, which is a huge job, but also you set the tone, you set the palette. How the show is going to look going forward is very much based on the work that the director does in that pilot episode, and Martin Scorsese's work on it is is really fantastic. So that's why I'm picking Boardwalk Empire in terms of um, celebrating his work, I guess. Scorsese is one of those icons of film that cinephiles always insist you like, and those are perhaps uh, the same reasons I've struggled with enjoying his work and the work of Michael Mann. It's been difficult to find that through line through epic stories about complicated masculinity. It's not really uh, my breakfast, if you will, but hey, it's okay to say that something isn't for you. I think that's kind of the joy of loving pop culture and loving film criticism. Um, so yeah, that would be me uh, That would be my favourite Martin Scorsese bit Is the part that episode of Boardwalk Empire And if you haven't seen that show You are in for such a treat I'm really, really jealous that you have A few really incredible seasons Of a very expensive, very lush Very well-made, very well-acted Crime epic waiting for you
0: So even like Maria like Even though she doesn't love his films Clearly loves Boardwalk Empire Scorsese made an ad a lot of filmmakers make ads. It's fine. Wes Anderson makes them. I love them. Scorsese made an ad for a casino. Paid a ridiculous amount of money, apparently. Uh,
2: $70 million for 16 minutes.
0: Yeah, uh, to advertise some casinos in Macau and other places that have not been built yet. For,
2: it must be said, James Packer and Brett Ratner Yeah, and their Rat Pack Entertainment. I, I often say it took Scorsese 50 years to make a bad movie, but these people
49: <laughs> forced his hand... Giles Hardy, entertainment journalist. Ah, The Audition. A short film financed by casinos. Casinos, where no one from Martin Scorsese to you, the audience, can walk out without damaging their integrity at least a little bit. This short film should have been a safe bet. You have DiCaprio. You have De Niro. You have Brad Pitt and you have Martin Scorsese not only directing but acting. All of them playing themselves. We don't even need work to know who they are. And all that was needed for a full house, an absolute winner, was a script. So here, audience, is your challenge grab a friend, set an egg timer for three minutes and write down every joke that you can think of around this premise. Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro run into each other outside of a casino where they're about to audition for a role in Martin Scorsese's new film. Remember, they've both been his muse before, multiple films, but they've never been in a film together. They're about to go against each other. Great idea. They start in a casino in Manila, they then go to a casino in Macau and then they go to Japan and this will shock you they land in a casino. Now, pick up a red pen. You've got those ideas? Great. Fantastic. Grab them and just cross out anything that's risky or that pokes fun of casinos or, and this is crucial, anything that's funny or innovative or new or interesting. Great. If you've done all that, you've just earned a handy few million dollars, or at least you did by the standards of this film, where each of the actors, those four, are said to have taken home 13 million dollars. Presumably, it was compensation for a few days' work on a soundstage in New York, because none of those casinos have been built yet, and also for a few press conferences where they gave their real performances as actors genuinely proud of this film. How bad is the actual film? Well, let me put it this way. It was said to be going to debut in Venice at the film festival and actually debuted at a casino. That really says everything you need to know. It's enough to lose your fortune in a casino. Please don't lose your respect for Martin Scorsese in one. My advice, go and watch The Shave again. You'll squirm an awful lot less.
0: Yeah, I gotta say, look, I I didn't mind this film. Like, it's an ad. It was what it was. The thing, I'm not bothered by it. Like, I find it weird. Scorsese made a film called Casino where he lamented the death of Old Vegas. You know, it's obviously something he cares about. Scorsese hated casinos. I would have a problem with him selling out like this. I don't think he's selling out the same way I don't think George Clooney, like, hates coffee and is making ads for Nescafé anyway. (laughs) Like, I find the weird... I find when we care about filmmakers selling out... Like, if if one of his films had an ad in it that went against the narrative of the film, Mm. that would bother me. I have no problem with filmmakers making ads and, you know... In their idiom. Yeah. And Mm. if you can make a whole bunch of money outside of your artistic career... Go for it! Like yeah. I, just, I just didn't like, think it was
2: very funny, and I think it, it's the garish
0: CGI and yeah. staging. That's the stuff. that Yeah, and like fair play to Giles. Okay, you don't you don't like it, but like it's fine. Like I, mean, yeah. I <laughs> don't know why we're focusing on it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that was that was an interesting take. So for a while, I've thought that this was a reaction I had after seeing it in the cinema, and that upon rewatch, this opinion would go away. It did not. I think The Departed is up there with Marty's best work. I think it's absolutely. I I would. I would rank it up there with his best films. I'd agree. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I really love this. Love this film. I mean, even though it's in a genre that's not my favourite, the performances, the tension, the mastery of, of the storytelling. I think it's really, really good. I can, I can see why you'd say that. Yeah. It. It. I don't know.
2: I don't know. It's because I'm. I was a fan of Infernal Affairs first, the original Hong Kong film, but. I don't know. I like this a lot, but it's like it's a beautiful Hollywood imitation. It's very Marty. I mean, I could I just watch Wahlberg and Baldwin go at it for yeah, yeah. <laughs> for two hours. They're hilarious. I'm light love on yeah. the department. Like mm-hmm. the department's like an eight out of ten movie to me. It's it's great popcorn. Somebody, I think Tim Egan, a good friend of ours, described it as a. It's like a cheeseburger made by uh, one of the greatest chefs in the world.
0: I, that's right I do remember him saying and that's, that's kind of how The
2: Departed feels to me I, I, yeah, I have okay. to agree with that but I do yeah I do love it Jennifer
0: Rita filmmaker
36: for me there are two standout Scorsese moments the first is every single Sandra Bernhard scene in King of Comedy and the second is the Pink Floyd sex scene between Billy and Madeline in The Departed I'm not sure that The Departed is considered an outstanding Scorsese film, and I am not a fan of Leonardo DiCaprio. But there is something about this scene in this film, which I find utterly irresistible. The roles are somehow reversed. DiCaprio has a a kind of feminine uh, vulnerability where um, Formiga has a kind of power position Uh, masculinity. Up until this moment in the film we've watched the two of them develop a relationship and we are dying for them to hook up. So when they do and it's choreographed to a mediocre Pink Floyd cover, well it just is one of the most satisfying uh, payoffs in a relatively otherwise unsatisfying film
0: i get that i just think there's an energy to, to the part that feels like it was made by a, a filmmaker half his age I, I agree i think it's just like we expect that from him like you know what i mean i think it's just
2: we've had it too good for too long yeah. And it's like of course marty's doing it like this whereas if it was any other 70 year old or 60 70 or however he was when he made it director would be stunned but i think from scorsese it's like of course
1: but what do you think about the fact he won the oscar for this one Yeah, that's... The the Lifetime
0: Achievement Award.
2: Look, even though
1: I love... exactly what it is.
0: (laughs) Even though I love The Departed, uh, it's obviously, you know, the Oscars are uh, half the time, they're Lifetime Achievement Awards. Mm, mm. Like, oh, we forgot to give it to you Mm. for this other one. Mm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Like, it could have been worse. Like, if he'd won for, say, Gangs of New York, I'd be like... Yeah. But Mm. I'm happy with The Departed.
2: Yeah, I am too. I'm happy with that, that choice. I mean, would it have been better for him to have won it for Goodfellas or Raging Bull, of course? Would it have been good for him to have been nominated for taxi driver? Sure. It's a baffling <laughs> choice I'll never fail to understand. Um so his next film, after that, uh I believe he took some time off to make some documentaries. Took some time off. He never takes time off. <laughs> Segue to documentaries, came back to features with 2010's Shutter Island, which is a film I'm still yet to kind of re reckon with. Yeah. Again, I think I saw it. And it struck me on a very surface B-level, B-movie level. It felt like the world's biggest B-movie. Um, I mean, I love the score that he uses. Like, yeah. <laughs> I love that. You know, everybody's really great. at It looks amazing. Like, there's a lot to enjoy, but it did feel like a bit of a big B-movie. And it's often considered an underdog in his filmography.
0: Alexandra Helen Nicholas.
10: Like a lot of film critics, I suspect, Martin Scorsese was a pretty major part of my undergraduate education in cinema. And films like Goodfellas and King of Comedy in particular felt like they were virtually inescapable if you were a film student in Australia of a certain generation. Kind of automatic go-tos to demonstrate everything from panning shots to star persona. So while I certainly admired his craft, Scorsese, for me at least, after these years in particular, really became locked into my brain as a kind of teaching tool. The clinical world of academia really reducing his work to something purely didactic. I think I felt that gap become even stronger with his earlier work with Leonardo DiCaprio in particular. Gangs of New York, Aviator and The Departed all left me personally pretty cold. And I sort of felt that while a lot of his earlier movies had certainly retained a really strong place in my heart, at this point in his career, I almost felt that Scorsese and I were kind of done. And then came Shutter Island. Nothing about Shutter Island's promotion spoke to me at the time. I thought, you know, here we go, here's another Scorsese DiCaprio circle jerk. And then I heard it was a horror film. And being a huge fan of Scorsese's film school short, The Big Shave, that automatically kind of perked up my interest levels. Then two important things happened. Time and time again, two influences kept rising to the surface in the way people spoke about Shutter Island. The 1940s films of B-grade King Val Luton, a producer at RKO responsible for some of my favourite horror films of that era, including Cat People and I Walked With a Zombie, kept being discussed as an important point of reference, and Scorsese himself has raved and been a huge champion for Luton's work for years. But the second point of reference, I think, raised my heartbeat even more intensely. Parallels were continually being made between Shutter Island and William Peter Blatty's 1980 film The Ninth Configuration, a movie that to this day I still think of as one of the most grossly underrated masterpieces of the late 20th century. Blatty, of course, wrote the novel that William Friedkin's The Exorcist was based on, and he himself would come back and direct Exorcist III, which is itself a superb film and an exception to the rule that sequels suck. But The Ninth Configuration is something really magical. It's a kind of spin-off of The Exorcist, I guess, and it follows the story of the astronaut that Reagan tells you're going to die up there in Friedkin's original film. The Ninth Configuration is hyper-theatrical gothic excess marked by a really deeply funny, extremely dark black humour. And once you've seen it, there's not really any way, I think, to go back to Shutter Island and see it as anything less than a love letter to Bloody's really neglected film. But of course we're talking about Scorsese here, and Shutter Island is much, much more than mere fan service. What struck me at the time I first saw it, and what strikes me now revisiting it, which I do probably more often than any other of his post-1990 films, is just how well Shutter Island holds together on subsequent revisits. Films that rely heavily on a twist are often a one-trick pony, but Shutter Island gets, for me at least, more interesting the more times I watch it. I think it's the one late-era Scorsese film really deserving a long-overdue renaissance. Tom
0: Clift, editor and writer.
47: I think this is probably a movie that suffers a little bit uh, in the sort of collective cinematic consciousness uh, by virtue of the fact that it was made by one of the greatest filmmakers to ever live. Uh, and look, to be fair, it probably doesn't belong in the upper echelon of Scorsese's you know greatest films. Uh, there are certainly some fairly unlikely elements to the film's plot that might raise a few eyebrows, uh, and I'm not sure how great a film this screenplay would have yielded in the hands of a lesser director. But speaking as someone who loves, you know, genre cinema, who loves a bit of pulp, I think this film is really just a great example of a, a master director really elevating the material that he's working with. You know, I mean, you look at the, the visuals in this film are just fantastic, whether it's that forbading... Uh, natural quality of the landscape or the really vivid use of of color in the flashback scenes especially and i think certainly there the film sits right up there with probably taxi driver in terms of that use of color um as well as those haunting flashbacks to the liberation of dachau which are just absolutely horrifying and just really contribute to this this sense of grim horror to the film um likewise the soundtrack which is kind of full of this classical music that is utilized with such bombast and really has this omnipotent quality that, like the visuals, like the kind of paranoid performances, contribute to this sense of uh, suffocation, this idea that you're trapped, which is obviously something that's being experienced by DiCaprio's protagonists. And I think, again, the way that Scorsese shot this film, the way it's all put together, really, yeah, like I said, elevates what is, you know, perhaps fairly B-grade material. I mean, look, and that being said, while the narrative itself may play as somewhat ludicrous... I do think there is a little bit more going on here than just, you know, an homage to Hitchcock. Uh, Obviously, guilt is maybe the quintessential theme in Scorsese's films, and I think the way that it's explored here, you know, is really very compelling. So anyway, that's my little defense of Shutter Island, which, you know, ultimately is probably a movie that I think would be much more highly regarded had it been made by almost anyone else.
3: Brian trenchard
0: Smith.
8: I love the way he pushes the envelope with his camera style. Take a look at what he did with 3D in Hugo. It's an amazing use of the
0: format. Cerise Howard, critic and festival director.
50: Now, for my contribution to this celebration of Martin Scorsese for Hell is for Hyphenets, I thought I'd hone in on one of the lesser celebrated aspects of Martin Scorsese's contribution to cinema, but for me, one of the very most significant. And I will use his adaptation of Brian Selznick's book, The Invention of Hugo Cabret, as a springboard for uh, my little tribute to a great filmmaker, but more notably for me, a great cinephile. And, and Hugo was a, a film that only a, a true cinephile could have made. It tells a story of Georges Mélier, one of the most significant of all filmmakers of all time, a pioneering filmmaker, a pioneer in the world of special effects and Genre cinema, science fiction, fantasy, and trick photography. Scorsese had the great idea of 3D-ifying Millier's work. In fact, we don't even really see that much of Millier for quite a while in the, in the film. And there's probably many people who'd never heard of him, and prior to seeing Hugo would have known nothing of him, though they would no doubt have been at least familiar of one particular image from Millier's A Trip to the Moon, that being an image of a moon, of the moon, with a rocket in its eye. Uh, A very iconic image. Uh, I I think Millier would have been really tickled by Scorsese's imagining of his cinema in 3D because it's no doubt a, I hesitate to say novelty, but um, uh, an approach to filming that Millier would have loved to have adopted himself uh, had the technology been around in his day. Where where this is leading to me is this, that um, Scorsese's cinephilia is such that he has made... For example, a, a four hour long documentary, My Voyage to Italy from 1999, in which he, uh, an Italian American, celebrated the Italian cinema, especially uh, some real or tourist or Italian cinema that hugely influenced him. And if there's something, when I think of Scorsese, I really think of his passion for cinema more than I often think of his films, some of which I am very fond of. I mean, of course, he's a masterful filmmaker. But from my perspective, as a co-curator of the Melbourne Cinematheque, I adore the fact that Scorsese is central to the uh, perpetuation of film as an art form and and the perpetuation of the materiality of film and the preservation of film, which is, after all, a very vulnerable art form. The materials upon which motion pictures have been made have, have long been difficult to preserve, and imperiled and an awful lot of film history is lost and this even very much extends into the digital age just because something's made with zeros and ones doesn't mean it's going to last and there are a whole lot of uh, issues there for challenges for archivists a bit beyond the scope of this rambling monologue but hats off to you martin scorsese
2: yeah i hugo was was a real shocker for me i it was a film i did not expect to like i remember seeing the trailers and thinking why the frig has Marty done this like some kids film it looks like a bloody Harry Potter film in 3D and I don't like 3D and again I think it just underscores how much Scorsese understands what cinema is mm. because nobody with the possible exception of Vim vendors and Pina nobody's ever used 3D better than Scorsese there is something about the levels of depth in this film like the the depth perception as you're looking through rooms into other rooms into that 3D in this film gives us that I've never ever seen in another 3D film before or since. And it really does heighten the storytelling and the perception of everything. And it's and so the thing is like clearly he understands what cinema does to us, does to our brains, does the way we perceive it, the way we perceive this information. And and it's also a really sweet, beautiful, engaging movie, and it's really fun. And as someone who is almost violently opposed to most, you know, like, kid cinema in, you know, in my DNA. I really... I was just utterly enchanted by this. And also, too, I I think the thing I dug the most about Hugo is it's a total Trojan horse. It's like, I've got you in on this, this fun, rollicking, Harry Potter-style, you know, turn-of-the-century ride about this kid. Now that I've got you locked in the theatre... I'm going to talk to you a little bit about film preservation. Yeah. I, I felt like,
1: a little bit preached to, I've got to say, on that I, I level. I think it was
2: preaching to the converted for me. Yeah. Like, it was like, I see he's preaching, yeah. but I love it. And yeah. I love that he's got people unawares and he's now giving them a sermon. I I kind of dug the, the guts of that. Mm.
1: Do we know if kids liked this film? Yeah, that's interesting,
2: isn't it? Oh. I, I have thought that myself. And it's like, I wonder if this would actually appeal to kids. I we 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 showed a few sessions at acme where i work and i kids seem to respond to it yeah um it's a little long i think some littler kids kind of drift off but yeah i think sort of you know tweens kind of get into it
0: i think anything over two hours is too oh hang on i've just looked at the time Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but then am i right in saying that wolf of wall street is is the biggest hit of his career i think you might be right actually yeah because it, it certainly sucked in a lot of people... Like, people who wouldn't go and see a Martin Scorsese film love this film.
2: How did we not check a box office chart before recording this? <laughs> um, yeah, I you point out The Departed. I think this is the one. I think Wolf of Wall Street is up there with the best of Marty's works. And this is the third... Remember I mentioned before that I think there are two loose thematic trilogies for Scorsese. There's the mob one where, you know, you're rising through the levels. I think this is the third part with... Goodfellas and Casino being the first two parts of the Fuck You Pay Me trilogy mm. this is about America and America's obsession with wealth and commerce and about how everything comes down to money and everything's about you know the way we get through this life and the way we distinguish our personalities and the way we move um, the way you become a success in America is to become rich to make money to and it's, and it's all about Fuck You Pay Me Mm. Uh, that's what american culture essentially boils down to
1: for me the heart of this film the moral heart of this film is the character played by kyle chandler who's the fbi agent investigating leo Mm. he's so he's so good and he's so uncorruptible and you feel such such pity for him and such such admiration Mm.
2: Yeah, he's straight arrow in such a beautiful believable yeah. way. But not
0: yeah. A, yeah, not a boy scout way. Yeah. Like for me the film lives in those final 5 minutes when the the point of the thesis is driven home and you see him sitting on the subway train looking at everyone yeah. and going like do I regret not selling? Do I regret not becoming corrupt? And then the faces of all the people in that New Zealand audience, you know. <laughs> and it's just, that's that's what elevates it to greatness for me. And, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, Carl Chandler, this film doesn't work without his character.
2: Yeah.
1: And yeah, he's is, always really great too. Which is, you know, the ultimate argument against those people that say Scorsese doesn't take a moral position. He's mm. so ambivalent and ambiguous about, you know, he, he relishes in the bad stuff. I think this film would say no. He does take a position.
2: Absolutely. It's also, not only DiCaprio's best performance under Scorsese, for mine, this is DiCaprio's best performance. I think he is flat out incredible in this movie. I mean, like, the, the, the Quaalude scene you mentioned before, yeah, yeah. the physical comedy he plays in that scene is like, it's Jim Carrey-like. Yeah. It's like, who knew he was capable of this?
0: Yeah, that's true. No, I, this is probably my favourite performance of his in a Scorsese film, or maybe ever. It, I just, yeah, I just think he's mind-blowingly
2: good. He's charismatic when he needs to be charismatic. He's oily. He's but he's also a kid who's, you know, at, is just pure aspiration, pure mm. ambition, mm. Um, without wanting to do the work to get there. You know, he's a, he's modern-day America. He's capitalist America. You know, and again, like, how is this made by a what a seventy-year-old man at that point? Mm. Like, again, it's all the visual and and oral rush that. Casino and Goodfellas at After Hours have. It's so beautiful. And then, you know, you've got Matthew McConaughey (laughs) thumping his chest. Tegan Hickenbotham,
0: actor and comedian.
51: One of the things I love about Martin Scorsese is his ability to just pick a moment, to pick. (laughs) that moment where an actor is about to shine their absolute brightest like I want to thank him from the bottom of my heart for giving the world Margot Robbie because before he spotted her and ripped her into the Wolf of Wall Street you know she was just Home and Away's Margot Robbie you know she was Summer Bay that's where they are right she was Summer Bay's Margot Robbie which is bullshit because she's so much better than that and I love that Martin Scorsese saw that magic in Margot Robbie. I mean, he was one of the people, I believe, that was integral for for creating the McConaissance. You know, back then we all used to think of Matthew McConaughey as how to lose a guy in 10... days at somebody's best friend's wedding i don't know i haven't seen the movies but he was a rom-com guy but martin scorsese saw that magic he saw that moment and once again looking at the wolf of wall street you got that beautiful scene where matthew mcconaughey performs alongside leonardo dicaprio in that executive coked up chest-beating glory
35: the, CEO. Oh. And the money comes in the parade comes to town going down broadway is a one-way street, whichever way I go.
51: And it is so good. It is so good to watch. And I love that Martin Scorsese gives us those moments.
0: Mm-hmm. Brian Trenchard-Smith.
8: Scorsese's wonners are always inventive. My personal favourite is in The Wolf of Wall Street. The camera prowls through the crowded, busy office. We hear Leonardo DiCaprio's voice on the soundtrack explaining the goings-on. Then, while they were
9: looking for a smoking gun in that
8: room, I was going to fire off a bazooka in here. Then when you don't expect it, he steps into frame and addresses the camera directly, breaking the fourth wall as he continues his spiel.
9: Now, as the firm taking the company public, we set the initial sales price and sold those shares right back to our friends. And then
8: finally, at the end of the shot, he leans into camera in big close up for his final
3: point. this was all this legal? Absolutely fucking not. But we were making more money than we knew what to do with. It is masterful.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree with what those guys said more. I think this is such an invigorating film. Mm. Then, Scorsese goes into kind of Japanese master mode here with Silence. Mm. It's like his kind of Mizuguchi, his uh, Kobayashi yeah. sort of film. Silence was a film, again, and this is another film I need to have a, another run out, because the first time I saw it, I was very frustrated by it. It ties together so many themes from his previous films. You know, there's a little Last Temptation in there. There's a little Mean Streets in there. There's a little...
0: A little Kundun. Of there's the a little... Cultures clashing, yeah.
2: Absolutely. But I found it frustrating. Every half hour... Like, I found the first half hour brilliant, breathtaking. The second half hour was like, oh, it's just kind of dragging. It's a bit tedious. It feels a bit warmed over. And I was literally... Those were my emotions every half hour. Right. So it's like the first, third, fifth half hour, great. The other half hour's... I just didn't respond Much like to people all. listening to this.
28: Yeah, yeah
0: totally. <laughs> no, I, like, I I totally get that. I was, I think this is a masterpiece. You know, we were talking earlier about the fact that he took the things that he grew up on and, and, and applied them to the world he knew. And yet, on the flip side of that, he's made maybe the most personal film of his life set in, you know, what was it, 16th century? 17th, yeah, feudal yeah, Japan. Feudal yeah. Japan. And it feels like such a personal reckoning with faith, even maybe even more than The Last Temptation. Like questioning it, even more about what it means to believe something and and how you represent that in the w- real world and and sort of the power of it and the meaninglessness of it
2: that's the thing and and that's why i can never truly discount this film and even though i had that reaction to it i'm so eager to see it again because mm. the the stuff this film gets right is masterful it's again top draw some of the best stuff is ever done and completely feels like one of those Japanese masters films. Yeah. You know, like you're just completely—you uh, don't feel like this is an American making this. You don't feel like this is New York Scorsese making this. Just so, he just so—he gets the mood and the you know the wind going through the trees, and the, and he gets everything so deliciously right.
0: Michael Ian Black, comedian and actor.
52: Silence came out in uh, 2016, and. If you haven't seen it, and I feel like a lot of people didn't see it, it's about uh, a couple of missionaries, and they go to Japan to uh, continue the work of another missionary who went there and ended up disappearing. Um, They're trying to uh, convert Japan to Catholicism because that's what Catholics do. They're trying to convert everybody. And uh, this is in the 17th century, by the way. This is the 1600s, so this is not contemporary. And then they go there and it's just a disaster. Uh, and when the movie came out, I feel like what I remember is that everybody was kind of hyped about it because it was Scorsese. And then I think it came out around award season and then it basically just got shut out. Nobody really paid any attention to it for awards. And uh, because I'm a, a massive celebrity, I get screeners, and uh, which everybody in the, uh, in the union does. Um, and, uh, we, and I was kind of reluctant to watch it cause it seemed sort of slow and boring and whatever. Uh, but I think we had run out of movies to watch and so we put on silence and I just thought it was by far the best movie of that year and, and one of Scorsese's best movies because it, it, it really felt like a, I don't want to say a coda, but an encapsulation of all the themes that he has explored throughout his career um faith and the nature of violence and competition and there you know it's it's a very masculine film so there's just it's just a lot of dudes running around having problems with each other in this case from two very different cultures but the main thing that i think really struck me about it is that in the end, for all of Scorsese's kind of searching, which I think his films are, are about, they're, they're, they're about, I think, primarily searching for some sort of reason in an unreasonable world. The conclusion that he seems to come to at the end of silence is exactly that. It's called silence because when you call out to God, you are often met. Uh, with that silence and so there's something kind of heartbreaking about it not just for the characters in the film but also it seemed to me for Scorsese the director who is making this film I don't want to say towards the end of of his career I don't know but you know he's a certain age and it seems like the answers that he's finding are just leaving him with more questions, which is both beautiful and and profound and a little bit sad It's also just a masterful It's just masterfully composed. I mean every shot in it is just Gorgeous it it seemed I I haven't seen it in a little while but it seems to me like there's a ton of just like natural light in it and Just very sort of it's just so Deliberate and Plod thing in the best kind of way Which is that each sort of small piece Unfolds at its own pace To the next piece, to the next piece To the next piece And it's it's epic Like a lot of Scorsese films But it's also intensely personal Like every Scorsese film It's also dealing with cultural issues That we're experiencing right now And the hubris of one culture Trying to impose its way On another and, And ultimately the fruitlessness of that so it's, it's got a little bit of everything. Uh, except I don't think there's any sex. Not that I remember. There's certainly not enough sex, I'll say that. Among 17th century Portuguese missionaries, you would think there'd be more sex, but no, hardly any at all.
0: Christos Cholkis, author.
43: There's a kind of a personal uh, relationship that I have to silence in that Scorsese has made films of two of my favourite novels of all time. And one of them is... Kazanzaki's The Last Temptation of Christ and the other one is *Endos*. uh, Silence. And there's always the sense of trepidation that you have going into the cinema to watch a film of a a novel you love. Um, Because the classic line is that, you know, you can't make a great film from a great novel. But I think that uh, twice, (laughs) Um, actually a few times Scorsese has done that. I was saying to a friend just just the other night that I think Silence is probably one of the most underrated of Scorsese's films. Um, I think possibly because it came out of, in a time when, uh, in terms of the culture, there was a lot of suspicion about a European director taking on, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, one of the great classics of uh, Japanese literature. But I think that was a really misguided view of the film because and why I mentioned Last Semptation of Christ is what for me connects both those films is Scorsese as a, as a Catholic and you cannot I think understand Scorsese cinema without understanding the deep influence of Catholicism as both something he's interrogating and something he's, um, he's trying to escape and something that he's absolutely fa- fascinated by what is the meaning of faith what is the meaning of that uh, experience in the world, Um, whether it's faith uh, in family, faith in friendship, faith in clan and, and, you know, faith in in God. And I think one of the things that connects Last Temptation and connects uh, silence is that this is a very Catholic filmmaker trying to understand faith and the struggle of faith into alien contexts. The first being orthodoxy. Kazantzakis was a, a Greek orthodox and though there is a similarity to the Catholic and orthodox experience. They had very, very different divergence. And it is the West and the, and the East. And then though Endo was uh, a Catholic Japanese writer, being um, being from the East, there's a different way. And, and being the outsider within Japanese culture as a, as a Catholic, I, I can see in how those, both those films work. And let me talk about silence. It's what does it mean to understand God in an alien um, context? And I think for Scorsese, when you look at his films, and I'm not the, the more straightforward genre films, but going right back to, um, to Main Streets for me, what is, how do you understand faith, I was in Taxi Driver, of course, too, uh, when you live in a secular world? And I think that is for me what is profoundly astonishing about silence is that visually and very, very quietly, for for a film that has got these incredible operatic set pieces, it is about a man trying to understand what is it that God wants of us in a completely alien situation. And that, that's where I think the, the, the profundity of the film lies and I think it is uh, when I say it's underrated too I also think it has some of the most astonishing uh, set pieces in all of um, Scorsese's all so I'm thinking of the, uh, the the scene of the crucifixions in the ocean which is just dynamic and moving and so beautifully edited and cut and I mean I, I just remember weeping when I first saw that in the, in the first screening I went to of, of silence and I also think we're the moment that the Andrew Garfield character has to step on the the icons or make that decision, that's also one of the the, the most um, astonishing scenes that uh, Scorsese has ever uh, committed to film. So, yes, I I mean, I think that there are so many ways of coming to Scorsese, um, but uh, for me, and this is kind of right back to what I, I said at the beginning, why it is personal for me is that I feel that one of the things that connects me to my love of him as a filmmaker and as an artist is that he's trying to understand this thing called faith. And I think that's what I'm trying to do as well. You know, I think people are so scared in the present day of the very concept of faith, of how we, how we talk about that. So I don't believe in the transcendental God, and I don't know if Scorsese necessarily believes that either. But I do, I do know in my gut that he's absolutely committed to questioning the what that means, and I, I I feel that that's a really important question, and to give it the grand term, what is the spiritual, and how do we create the spiritual, and what do we make of the spiritual in the contemporary world where we we only now have a secular language really, and the misunderstanding I think of silence is is precisely because I think it's asking those questions as a film, as a piece of art. And I remember in the... the, I've seen it three times now, and the first time was in a cinema, and I remember there were some giggles during some of the sequences that affected me most strongly, and I realised that those giggles were because people were really uncomfortable with the language of the film, with the film that was saying, we are going to be with a character who is taking the struggle with the meaning of God absolutely seriously. I think that's a very hard thing to do at the moment in our world, and that's one of the things I really admire about Scorsese as a as a filmmaker and as an artist and just a person in the world. You know, I can absolutely enjoy Goodfellas countless times. It's like what you know, it's like a feel-good movie for me. It's like it's like your favourite meal. You know what you're going to get, but there's no way I could argue that. Um, Silence is a more technically proficient film, for, for example, but I think for me it's a much more important film and a much more significant film because even in its moments of failure, and there are in Silence, there I think there are there is moments of melodramatic excess. Um, I think there's uh, script problems, but that doesn't matter because I think what it's doing is is much more important and the ability to try and convey something as difficult as uh, what is faith, and even though it's set in the, in the, in the distant past, in a, in a world that uh, has disappeared, and it's disappeared for the West as much as it's disappeared for, for, for the East, it feels absolutely contemporary, because I think that's, as I said, that's one of the things we're all struggling with, how do we have faith?
1: That brings us to where Scorsese is now in 2019. We are all eagerly awaiting, I think, his next film, which is The Irishman. Mm. Yeah, this is this is a Netflix-funded film that may or may not get a theatrical release.
2: Oh, it definitely um,
1: will. It definitely will? Okay. Um, it's cost $150 million because they're de-aging all the actors who are... De Niro, Pesci, Al Pacino, Harvey Keitel, all together again. Well,
2: oh, first team-up ever with Pacino.
1: This, Pacino yes, is never yes, a you're right, Scors- that's P- his first one. Um, this sounds like if you don't like Scorsese's gangster films, you're going to really hate this one. Yeah, will just, we'll just take the day off.
31: Just don't
0: yeah. go. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be a a Roosevelt biopic with DiCaprio coming right around the corner.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Or a TV adaptation of Devil in the White City uh, or something like that. That's the thing. The man never stops working. Yeah. Like, you know, one thing, just mentioned very quickly, like, he's made, like, a dozen, almost a dozen feature-length documentaries as well on, you know, various musicians, but also various aspects of New York. My favourite might be the Fran Lebowitz documentary, Public Mm. Speaking, which is hilarious. I could listen to her all day. Um, But, yeah, and then, you know, obviously The Personal Voyage and Voyage to Italy, and, you know, there's short films. A better ad is the key to Reserva. Which yeah. is his total Hitchcock homage. That was great. It's so good, but yeah, it's, even at this age, I think the man will just keep making films until he dies. I, I don't think mm. he. Well,
1: seventy six isn't that old these days.
2: No, it's That's not, true. and he's a very sprightly seventy six. <laughs> you wouldn't think it to look at him. <laughs> no. And, <I, Yeah. laughs> yeah. and you know, he has a teenage daughter, and you know, he's right. married. He's you know, he's he's been married to his latest wife for about 20 years so i think he's still living a fairly you know active mm. kind of sustaining kind of life um yeah he's not he's not aging into decrepitude anytime soon marty is forever young
0: and yeah you can see that in his work he's again 50 years and he's still making stuff that's as good as the stuff that made him the legend yeah. There's ones. no
2: old you know Tarantino talks about and one of the reasons Tarantino wants to retire after ten films is because he doesn't want to make old man movies. Right. School says he's never made an old
1: man movie. No. And you know His his detractors may say that's because he's remained adolescent forever. <laughs> <That's fair.
21: laughs>
2: Rimshot. Uh,
1: <laughs> not me. I didn't say that. No,
2: no. <laughs> And i love hearing him speak
41: yeah about anything mm, whether he's mm. narrating
2: a film or whether he's talking about a film or talking about something like just hearing that voice whether it's about women or about
0: pool or about well, well that's the thing or about music was both, <laughs> but that's the thing both his films <laughs> and the way he talks about other people's films reminded me why we started the show in the first place and yeah so i think oh, oh, oh a bit of thanks to him for that he's uh, the
2: spiritual godfather of hell for hyphenets yeah
1: and it's a beautiful place to finish the show
0: yeah it is. so yeah thank you everyone for listening um if you haven't heard the previous episodes there's nine years to catch up on <laughs> <laughs> but thank
2: you each and every one of you who jumped on early and listened to us and supported us or liked us and wanted to be guests um everyone who was ever a guest on this show thank you so much for taking the time out and giving us a piece of your film knowledge and your enthusiasm most of all because this if there's anything this show has been built upon over nine years it's enthusiasm thank you to all of you who jumped on halfway through though or if you're listening for the first time right now or just yeah we you're the reason we do this um and i mean partly because we
0: just you know we just love to hear ourselves talk it's been it's been a fun ride and i don't know we'll see you when we see you
1: so long and thanks for all the films
2: and i can't believe i ever went with this as a tagline but for one last time keep watching stuff